Washoe County won't say the city of Reno and those pushing to quickly construct the facility in 2020 built a flawed shelter operation. It is clear what the city handed over to the county last year fell short of initial claims. Showers and restrooms had to be closed due to overuse less than a year after opening. A former Volunteers of America employee told this as Reno that's because the city used, in some cases, materials not suitable for such a large population. The phased development of the remainder of the Nevada CARES campus includes division of sections in the Sprung Building, a welcome building with dining room, and permanent supportive housing. Image, Washoe County. The structure itself, a Sprung tent, only has a 20-year lifespan, according to the county's Dana Searcy. New infrastructure at the property will be more durable, she told county commissioners in April. All of these issues have Washoe County officials proceeding with a number of changes, new facilities, and completely changing the inside of the campus large tent structure. Smaller dorms will be added inside. Now, open areas are filled with cots and bunks with little to no privacy for residents. We are developing about six different dorms, which will allow us to further separate populations, women, frail, seniors, that kind of thing, Searcy said. We do have a lot of needs. We have a lot of working people in the building. We want to make sure that we can adjust and accommodate for their sleep schedule and that kind of thing. Walls need to be added within the structure to accomplish that. An adjacent property that is occupied by garage bays will become a resource center with showers, community court, laundry facilities, and a mail center for campus residents to get postal service. We receive mail for about 1,300 individuals, not only those staying at CARES campus, but for anyone in the community who doesn't have an address or who wants to use this address, Ken Searcy said. Supportive housing is planned for the property as well. Environmental remediation is required due to fuel tanks on part of the property that the Reno Housing Authority is slated to sell to the county. The bowl in the old baseball field has been filled in, which will support further housing options. The campus mob pods will remain. A new welcome center is under construction. www.youtube.com Searcy said the changes to property were prompted by changing needs. When the CARES campus was built, during the height of the pandemic, needs were different. Searcy also admitted the shelter has been at or near capacity since it opened. City of Reno officials originally said it would have a capacity of more than 900 people, but that figure changed over time to about 600. Mm -hmm. We always had the intention of taking it to the next level, Searcy said. There's been a lot of tweaks and changes. It met the need at the time, and now we're just trying to evolve it to meet the future need. Up to a dozen calls for police and medical services to the campus each day have prompted the county to provide nursing services on site. County commissioners in October 2021 approved the transfer of some of the campus land to Northern Nevada Hopes for a health clinic. We never intended to have medical services or mental health support here at the campus, mm. Searcy added. We were going to refer out and use our partners in the region, which mm. is what a lot of our programs do but seeing the sheer need and understanding our population, we've now built that in. Wow, is that amazing? Let me escape here. Can I get out of here? Stop sharing the screen. And I am recording, so I'm just gonna go over here and figure out where I am.
This is, believe, yes, what I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. This is the action plan. Save it. The action plan for Nevada opened with the system viewer. And after we read this one, then we'll read the other one. But let's just uh, select all. And begin reading. Nevada DMC Action Plan Summary, June 25th, 2019 Action Plan. Questions from OJJDP. One, what does your DMC number tell you about your jurisdiction? The Division of Child and Family Services, DCFS, is a state agency that is responsible for juvenile corrections and youth parole services. All other services are provided by independent counties. The state's DMC number indicates three distinct things. One, disparity exists at a greater rate in urban counties. Two, African-American disparity is seen at all contact points to include diversion. And three, African-American youth face greater disparity as they move deeper into the system. One, disparity is found primarily in the state's two largest counties, Clark County and Washoe County. The rural areas of the state tend to have more contact with Caucasian white youth. Greater than 85, 85% of the state's population resides in the two largest counties. Two, African-American youth face greater disparity as they move deeper into the system, especially around a secure setting and adult certification. Two, what would success in DMC reduction look like for your jurisdiction? Success is a several-step approach. First, success would be a completed understanding. Mm -hmm. It's an issue. Mm -hmm. Oops, let me move this out of the way here. Here, let's select all. One more time. Continue to speak. Nevada DMC Action Plan Summary, June 25th. 2019 Action Plan. Questions from OJJDP. One, what does your DMC number tell you about your jurisdiction? The Division of Child and Family Services, DCFS, is a state agency that is responsible for juvenile corrections and youth parole services. All other services are provided by independent counties. The state's DMC number indicates three distinct things. One, disparity exists at a greater rate in urban counties. Two, African-American disparity is seen at all contact points to include diversion. And three, African-American youth face greater disparity as they move deeper into the system. One, 
Disparity is found primarily in the state's two largest counties, Clark County and Washoe County. The rural areas of the state tend to have more contact with Caucasian white youth. Greater than 85, 85% of the state's population resides in the two largest counties. 2. African American youth face greater disparity as they move deeper into the system, especially around a secure setting and adult certification. 2. What would success in DMC reduction look like for your jurisdiction? Success is a several-step approach. First, success would be a completed understanding of the data to include how to diagnosis and analyze disparities at each decision point. Second, success would be the identification of at least one contributing factor of disparities at the major decision points of arrest, placement in secure detention, placement in secure confinement, and certification to adult court. Third success would finding the appropriate response to the contributing factors and provide that response to the appropriate audience and having the funding to continue to roll out the response. In addition, if changes to legislation is identified and deemed necessary during this third phase, that there is unanimous support for the change. Last, Success would be a gradual drop year-to-year -year in those core decision points within the largest counties and statewide. However, success at any level is a difficult undertaking as identified in the publication titled Reforming Juvenile Justice, a Developmental Approach, 2013. It states, several reasons can be identified as a means of understanding the lack of movement on these issues, including, but not limited to, lack of motivation, lack of cross-system collaboration, inadequate resources, and the extreme difficulties of disentangling the many complex, multi-level and interrelated factors that contribute to the problem, PG. 214. Additionally, the authors admit that little progress has been made in the past two, two decades, even with policy change and implementation. Lastly, they state that that disparity falls into one of two areas. Some indicate differential offending, more serious violent offenses, as the root cause of disparate, 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 disparate. They had some root cause. Let me just stop it. We're getting down to the root causes. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. I can, you know, this computer is brand new, but it doesn't work worth shit. That's real. And I'm going to share the screen again because I am recording. This is where I'm going to, this is the guidance, y'all. Uh, see how well this one works. Like it all. Mm -mm -mm. And let's begin to read. Steve Sisolak, Governor Joan M. Eber, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Southern Nevada, Office 2080 East Flamingo Road, Suite 210, Las Vegas. Nevada 89,119-0811-702-486-6458 FAX, 702-486-6450 Guidance Memorandum Number 1908 State of Nevada Department of Education 700 East 5th Street, Box Drawings Light Vertical Carson City, Nevada 89,715,096-775-687-9200, Box Drawings Light Vertical, www.do.nv.gov, Box Drawings Light Vertical, Fax, 775-687-91012, from 
date, subject, introduction during the 2019 legislative session, a number of bills were passed related to ensuring a safe and respectful learning environment. Assembly Bill 168, AB 168 was one such bill, and its requirements change current statute regarding school discipline to reflect practices related to restorative justice. Restorative justice recognizes school districts' efforts to create equitable systems where teaching positive behaviors. Repairing this guidance memo includes the following sections regarding implementing AV 168 and other relevant legislation from the 2019 session. Background and purpose. Statutory requirements. Dates and deadlines for schools and districts bullet timeline for implementation. Definitions background and purpose when the federal Every Student Succeeds Act ESSA was enacted, it brought renewed commitment by states and districts to safe learning environments They provide learning opportunities for all students while promoting academic excellence and equity. ESSA accelerated a trend that was already underway in some states and districts to move away from zero-tolerance discipline policies and toward more positive approaches to addressing student behavior. AB 168 builds on this trend by altering state expectations regarding districts' approach to student discipline. In many ways, AB 168 supports positive practices already in place in Nevada's districts and schools. Restorative justice is an alternative to exclusionary disciplinary practices which remove students from the academic environment. Instead, restorative justice seeks to repair the harm done when a standard of conduct is violated. In its September 2014 publication titled Restorative Justice Overview, the American Association of School Superintendents reported that, a local education agency's Joan M. Ebert, Superintendent of Public Instruction October 22, 2019 updates to discipline laws, data reporting requirements, and restorative justice practices per the 80th session of the Nevada Legislature, 2019, rather than removing students, the norm is relationships, and increasing accountability through reversing harm. Page 1 of 8. Restorative approach often requires a cultural shift for the entire school community. Educators must shift to see students as persons deserving of the opportunity to correct their wrongdoings and to learn from their mistakes, rather than as children in need of reprimand. This approach is rooted in positive relationships and behavior and helps create a supportive environment where students thrive personally and academically. The expectations of AB 168 reflect that professional learning will be vital to successful implementation and must necessarily include district boards of trustees, superintendents, principals, and educational and support personnel as well as students, parents, and guardians. Districts are encouraged to consult with local council as they implement the provisions of AB 168 and SB 89. Statutory requirements The major components of the changes under AB 168 can be understood as a set of student-level changes and systems changes. Student-level changes 1. Changes to discipline laws for all students, including restrictions on suspending and expelling students who are not more than 10 years of age, and 2. 
changes to discipline laws for students in a program receiving special education services under an individualized education program, IEP, including some additional restrictions on suspending and expelling such students. Systems changes. Three, shift from progressive discipline school-wide plans to restorative discipline district-wide plans, and four, changes to data collection and reporting regarding student discipline and attendance. Specific student level and systems changes are described in more detail below. In addition, the attachment student level changes of discipline laws may serve as a helpful reference. Student level changes. One, changes to discipline laws for all students suspension or expulsion. Only students who are at least 11 years old may be removed from a school, suspended, or expelled, with the following exceptions. Await general education students in possession of a firearm or dangerous weapon, NRS 392.466.3, or under extraordinary circumstances, in which case a school may request an exception to this prohibition from the District Board of Trustees, NRS 392.466.9, NRS 392.467.1. District Superintendent Modification of Suspension or Expulsion A district superintendent may, for a good cause shown in a particular case in that school district, allow modification to a suspension or expulsion made pursuant to Sections 1-5 of NRS 392.466 if such modification is set forth in the intent of this memo is to support district's implementation of AB 168 and is not meant to expand, minimize, or interpret the law. Page 2 of 8. Writing. If the superintendent determines that a plan of action based on restorative justice may be used successfully, the superintendent must allow the modification, NRS 392.466.7, removal solely based on attendance not permitted. A student may not be expelled, suspended, or removed solely for offenses related to attendance or if the student has been deemed a truant or habitual truant, NRS 392.467.5. Plan of action based on restorative justice prior to removal of a student. Bullet. A school must provide a plan of action based on restorative justice prior to the expulsion of any student, NRS 392, new section. A school must provide a plan of action based on restorative justice prior to the removal of a student for 1. Committing a battery that results in bodily injury of an employee or 2. Sale distribution of controlled substances, NRS 392.466.1. A school must make a reasonable effort to complete a plan of action based on restorative justice prior to the suspension or expulsion of a student deemed a habitual disciplinary problem, NRS 392.466.5. See attached sample plan of action based on restorative justice. Battery or sale distribution of controlled substances, NRS 392.466.1. If a student, one, commits battery that results in bodily injury of an employee, or two, sells or distributes any controlled substance on school grounds, a school bus, or at a school-sponsored activity and is at least 11 years old, 
Oh, the student must meet with the school and the parents' guardians, and oh, the school must provide a plan of action based on restorative justice to the parents' guardians, and oh, the student may, but no longer, must be expelled. NRS 392.466.1. Oh, existing requirements for enrollment elsewhere remain if the student is expelled. NRS 392.466.1. If a student has committed battery of an employee of a school, the employee may appeal the plan of action based on restorative justice if, one, the employee feels that any actions taken pursuant to that plan are inappropriate, and, two, for a special education student, the Board of Trustees has reviewed the circumstances and determined that the appeal is in compliance with Individuals with Disabilities Education Act IDEA NRS 392.466.2 Possession of a firearm or dangerous weapon NRS 392.466.3 A student who is found to be in possession of a firearm or a dangerous weapon may be removed from the school immediately upon being given an explanation of the reasons for the removal and pending proceedings, NRS 392.467.2. The first occurrence of possession of a firearm or a dangerous weapon, as defined in NRS 392.466.11, B and C, still requires a mandatory one-year minimum expulsion or placement in another kind of school for a period not to exceed the period of the expulsion. A second occurrence still requires permanent expulsion from the school, NRS 392.466.3. Existing requirements for enrollment elsewhere remain if the student is expelled, NRS 392.466.3, page 3 of 8. Removal to another school, NRS 392.466.4. If a school is unable to retain a student due to safety concerns or if it is not in the best interest of the student, the student may be suspended, expelled, or, now under AB 168, placed in another school for offenses outlined in NRS 392.466. Oh, if placement in another school is made, the current school of the student shall explain what services will be provided oh. to the student at the new school that the current school is unable to provide to address the specific needs and behaviors of the student. Oh, the district of the originating school must coordinate with the receiving school and your district to create a plan of action based on restorative justice and to ensure that the receiving school has the resources required to execute that plan of action. Habitual Disciplinary Problem, NRS 392.466.5 If a student is suspended, the school shall develop a plan of behavior for the student in consultation with the student and the parents' guardians of the student. The plan must be designed to prevent the student from being deemed a habitual disciplinary problem, NRS 392.4655.5. Oh, parents' guardians may choose to have their student not participate in the behavior plan that must be developed, NRS 392.4655.5. Oh, if the parents' guardians opt their student out of participating in the behavior plan, the school must inform them of the consequences of not participating, e.g., that the student may be deemed to be a habitual disciplinary problem, NRS 392.4655.5.
If a student is deemed to be a habitual disciplinary problem and is at least 11 years old, the student may be suspended for a period not to exceed one semester or may be expelled under extraordinary circumstances as determined by the principal if and only if the school has made a reasonable effort to complete a plan of action based on restorative justice, NRS 392.466.1. Oh, existing requirements for enrollment elsewhere remain if the student is expelled, NRS 392.466.1. Student charged with a crime, NRS 392.467.3. If a student has been charged with a crime, the District Board of Trustees may authorize the expulsion, suspension, or removal of a student regardless of the outcome of criminal or delinquency proceedings only if the school, one, conducts an independent investigation of the student's conduct, and, two, gives notice to the student of the charges brought by the school against the student. Although the statute indicates that the board may authorize the suspension or expulsion of a student, it should not be interpreted to require board action for each suspension and or expulsion, unless the board policy so requires Attorney General Opinion 9721. 2. Changes to discipline laws for students who receive special education services in accordance with an individualized education program, IEP, suspension or expulsion, page 4 of 8. A student with an IEP who is at least 11 years old may be removed from a school, suspended, or expelled only after the District Board of Trustees has reviewed the circumstances and determined that the action is in compliance with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act IDEA NRS 392.466.10, NRS 392.467.6, except in the case of possession of a firearm or dangerous weapon by a student, which is described below. Suspension of a student with an IEP is limited to one to five days for each occurrence of misconduct, NRS 392.466.10, NRS 392.467.6. As with general education students, a student with an IEP who is younger than 11 years old must not be permanently expelled except under extraordinary circumstances, in which case a school may request an exception to this prohibition from the District Board of Trustees, NRS 392.466.9, NRS 392.467.1, Battery or Sale Distribution of Controlled Substances, NRS 392.466.1. If a student with an IEP has committed battery of an employee of a school, the employee may appeal the plan of action based on restorative justice if, one, the employee feels that any actions taken pursuant to that plan are inappropriate, and, two, the Board of Trustees has reviewed the circumstances and determined that the appeal is in compliance with Individuals with Disabilities Education Act IDEA NRS 392.466.2, Possession of a Firearm or Dangerous Weapon, NRS 392.466.3. A student with an IEP who is at least 11 years old who is found to be in possession of a firearm or a dangerous weapon may be removed from the school immediately upon being given an explanation of the reasons for their removal and pending proceedings. A student with an IEP who is 10 years old or younger cannot be removed from school immediately.
This age limitation does not apply to general education students. Systems changes. 3. District Restorative Discipline Plans, formerly Site Progressive Discipline Plans, as required by NRS 392.4644, which was amended by both AB 168 and SB 89. Per AB 168, the requirement for establishment of a plan to provide for the restorative discipline of students and on-site review of disciplinary decisions is now at the district's board of trustees level rather than at the principal level, as it had been previously. The plan must be developed with input and participation of teachers, school administrators, and other educational and support personnel and the parents' guardians of students enrolled in schools within the district, and will include provisions designed to address the specific disciplinary needs and concerns of each school within the district. Additions to the District Restorative Discipline Plan per AB 168 and SB 89, oh, the plan must provide for placement at a different school in accordance with NRS 392.466, including all new changes additions resulting from AB 168 and SB 89, page 5 of 8. Oh, per SB 89, the plan may allow for assignment to a temporary alternative placement, now reads, may, rather than require it, former language was, must. Principal Review and Distribution of the District Restorative Discipline Plan Oh, each principal must review the district restorative discipline plan in consultation with recommendations of teachers, school administrators, other educational and support personnel, parents, guardians, and students who are enrolled in the school, and THO on or before September 15th of each year, make recommendations for revisions to the district board of trustees, and will post the plan on the school's website, and will distribute a copy of the plan, written or electronic, to each teacher, school administrator, and all educational and support personnel who are employed at or assigned to the school. Note. The requirement for a district restorative discipline plan, formerly progressive discipline plan, pursuant to NRS 392.4644 is an entirely separate requirement from the plan of action based on restorative justice that must be provided in certain circumstances before removing a student from school. 4. Changes to data collection and reporting on student discipline and attendance. The Nevada Department of Education has provided a sample template attached to support compliance with new data collection and reporting requirements in advance of the vendor-approved data collection template. Templates for reporting requirements that are not related to the state's accountability framework will be provided by NDE for the 2019-20 school year. Really? These include but are not limited to the requirements of AOB. 114, AB 261, AB 378, and SB 89. The following changes have been made to the requirements for collecting and reporting of student discipline and attendance data per Assembly Bill 168. Each public school, including charter schools, must collect data on student discipline, including the number of expulsions and suspensions and the number of placements of students in another school. The discipline data must be disaggregated into subgroups of students, see list below per SB 89 and by the types of offense. 
the principal of each school shall review the data and take appropriate action and report the data to their district's board of trustees each quarter. Per Assembly Bill 490, 2019, NTE will engage stakeholders in the development of standard definitions for offenses and sanctions as required by AB 490 during the 2019-20 school year for implementation during the 2020-21 school year. Each public school, including charter schools, must collect student discipline data, which must be reported annually to NDE through the Automated System of Accountability, Nevada Report Card, page 6 of 8. OB disaggregated into subgroups of students, see list below per SB 89, and will include occurrences of suspension and expulsion as separate offenses. Mm -hmm. Per Senate Bill 89, 2019, mm -hmm. SB 89 adds a new requirement that the annual report of accountability, Nevada report card, must include records of the attendant and truancy for students in all grades and information on student discipline which must be disaggregated by gender as well as pupils who are o, economically disadvantaged o, from major racial and ethnic groups, o, individuals with disabilities, o, English learners, o, migratory children, o, homeless, o, in foster care, and o, whose parent or guardian is a member of the armed forces of the United States, a reserve component thereof, or the National Guard. Dates and deadlines for districts and schools on or before September 15th of each year, the principal of each school must review the district's restorative discipline plan and, in consultation with teachers, school administrators, other educational and support personnel, parents, guardians, and students who are enrolled in the school, make recommendations for revisions to the district's board of trustees. On or before November 15th of each year, each district board of trustees shall submit a written report to the superintendent of public instruction that describes the progress made by each school in the district with respect to complying with the requirements of AB 168. The progress report must also be posted on the district's website. Each quarter of each year, the principal of each school must report data related to student discipline to the district board of trustees, which must include, without limitation, the number of expulsions and suspensions of pupils and the number of placements of pupils in another school. Such data must be disaggregated into subgroups of students and types of offense. Timeline for implementation. On or before November 15, 2019, each district superintendent shall submit to the superintendent of public instruction the name of one administrator and one teacher who will jointly serve as the district's representatives to a statewide restorative justice planning team, RJPT. This team will convene once in November 2019 and once in January 2020 to provide advice to NDE on how to strengthen support to school communities related to implementation of AB 168. On or before December 15, 2019, NTE will post to its website sample restorative justice page 7 of 8. Attachment S. 1. Holding a pupil accountable for his or her behavior. 2. Restoration or remedies related to the behavior of the pupil. 3. Relief for any victim of the pupil. And 4. Changing the behavior of the pupil. 
Quick Reference Guide to Student Level Changes of Discipline Laws Nevada Report Card 2019-20 School Year Discipline Reporting Template Sample Plan of Action Based on Restorative Justice Restorative Plan of Action Information Action Plans Professional Development Curriculum Models and Best Practices and names of consultants or presenters who can provide training on restorative justice for staff and community. Definitions Battery, NRS 392.466.11, A, NRS 200.481.1, A, means any willful and unlawful use of force or violence upon the person of another. Dangerous Weapon, NRS 392.466.11b, includes, without limitation, a blackjack, slungshot, billy, sand club, sandbag, metal knuckles, dirk or dagger, a nunchaku or trefoil, as defined in NRS 202.350, a butterfly knife or any other knife described in NRS 202.350, a switchblade knife as defined in NRS 202.265, or any other object which is used, or threatened, to be used, in such a manner and under such circumstances as to pose a threat of, or cause, bodily injury to a person. Firearm NRS 392.466.11 C includes, without limitation, any pistol, revolver, shotgun, explosive substance or device, and any other item included within the definition of a firearm in 18 U.S.C. paragraph 921, as that section existed on July 1, 1995. Habitual Disciplinary Problem, NRS 392.4655. A principal of a school shall deem a pupil a habitual disciplinary problem if the school has written evidence which documents in one school year that owed the pupil has threatened or extorted, or attempted to threaten or extort, another pupil or a teacher or other personnel employed by the school two or more times, or oh, the pupil has a record of five suspensions from the school for any reason, and oh, the pupil has not entered into and participated in a plan of behavior pursuant to subsection 5 of NRS 392.4655. Restorative Justice, AB 168, Non-Punitive Intervention and Support Provided by the School to a Pupil to Improve the Behavior of the Pupil and Remedy Any Harm Caused by the Pupil. Restorative Disciplinary Practices, SB 89, the restorative discipline plan required by NRS 392.4644 must provide restorative disciplinary practices which include, without limitation, page 8 of 8. That was so interesting. Don't you think that was interesting? I really do. I just have to share here. You see, public education is just not about that. I'm going to pause recording right now and find something what education should be about. Okay. This is what I was able to find when I was looking for habitual, dis habitual disciplinary problem. I'm pulling it up here and let's just see where we find this word. I'm going to select all and then I'm going to begin to read. Where is it? Mm -hmm. Speech. There we go. Is it going to do it? I don't know. I don't hear anything. Let's go back over here. 
If you're a lawyer, you write briefs. And if you no, I want to be on that page, that's for sure. This is a page I want to be on, so I have to come back over here and select all the text. Oh, it's like money, okay. Let's see what's happening. It's not going to read it for me. Oh, maybe it did it. Hmm, let me see. I don't hear anything, do you? I don't hear a thing. Well, anyways, it says missing or murdered indigenous persons, legal prosecution, advocacy of health care. And then it goes working together, sustaining multi-directional response to missing and murdered indigenous children. Isn't that amazing what it really talks when you talk about habitual disciplinary problem? I don't think that that's what we're looking for. I want to look over here and check the word because I'm in this document. Am I in this document? I don't know. I don't see where I can search the document. Let me stop this piece right here. Oh, this computer just doesn't work worth a shit. Escape, escape. Mm-hmm. I have to stop this, stop the share, so that I can control the computer. I'm going to pause the recording for a minute. And I'm going to share the screen one more time. Here we go. So when I was looking for this word right here, habitual disciplinary problem in education. Now, I'm looking. I'm not looking at cities or states or whatever because I'm not using Google. I'm just using the Department of Education's website. And I'm looking for that term. And I don't see anything that talks about, you know, what is this one? All right, here we go. Addressing habitual tardiness in the army. But that's it. Hmm. Let's see. Let's change another page here. Hmm. Human rights in the Bahamas. Human rights. You know, is that what we're talking about? Human rights? Mm-mm. Procedures for asylum and withholding or removal of credible fear or reasonable fear review. What is that? Human rights? Well, I just want you to understand that when people start talking about this type of behavior, when it is their obligation to train and teach, that's the problem. Let's go here. Let's go here. Let's look for here. I want to go. What's the matter, Mama? Go to that one. Oh, here we go. We're gonna go. Oh no. We go here. And we're here. Well, we're gonna go to here. Let's type here in this word up here. H A. I want to move it so you can see me. Okay, H A. Hmm. Where are we? B I T U A L. B I S C I P L I N A R. Oh, what do you want to type? I'm up here typing. H A. We'll try it again. B. 
T-U-A-L-D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-A-R-O-B-L-E-M. Let's look. Searching the Department of Education's website search. It's searching. Nothing is found. Now, isn't that amazing? Nevada has an NRS code where nothing is found. And let's just look at Google, shall we? Because I just really want to make sure. Stop the share. I really want to make sure that I am not crazy. Hello, hello. I'm going to go to Google. And I am going to reshare the screen. Here, share my screen. Share, share, share. Here we go. Share it. Now, I want to type in just YouTube and see what they have here. H, habitual disciplinary. P-R-O. Uh, oh, there's problems right there. Let's see what Google, I mean, what do they have on it? Corrections. Corrections. Okay. Mm-hmm. You see, Nevada has his own thing about issues about discipline hmm well let's just check this one out this was nine years ago it's an hour and 30 minutes hmm that's employees anyway let's see education let me just type in education and see if anybody else is doing whatever they're doing mm-hmm okay this was eight years ago school Oh, here. We'll just share this one. I don't know. It was 30 months ago. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage AURA present, Vivian Gadsden. Thank you. Welcome and good evening. I am Vivian Lynette Gadsden, president of the American Educational Research Association, referred to as AERA. On behalf of AERA, I want to welcome all of you joining us here in person in Boston and the hundreds more who are watching online. So this is our sixth and final AERA Centennial Lecture and Open Forum. We are pleased that our event tonight is being held here at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. This is a gracious and incredibly inspirational venue located in one of our nation's most historic cities. We are truly honored to be here. For those of you who are tweeting tonight's event, the hashtag is AERA Lectures. And as a courtesy to all of our speakers, commentators, and those of you who will be participating from the audience, we ask that you silence your cell phones and, and enjoy the evening with us. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with AERA, the American Educational Research Association is the National Scholarly and Scientific Society dedicated to advancing knowledge about education to encouraging scholarly inquiry related to education 
and to promoting the use of research to improve education and serve the public good. Founded in 1916, AERA has celebrated its centennial year this past year. The centennial lecture series has not only been a major part of AERA's centennial celebration, but after the centennial, it will also continue to be an important component of the association's work as we move into our second century. Now, having started last November and going through April, this series of six lectures and open forums are bringing innovative research and leading scholars to six cities in the United States. And so you'll know what these are. We were in Brooklyn, focused on immigration, in Seattle, focused on the brain, in Los Angeles, focused on higher education, in Oklahoma City, focusing on early child development, most recently in Detroit, focusing on poverty, and here tonight in Boston, focusing on school discipline. The lecture series very much reflects AERA's commitment to promoting public engagement and connecting education research on significant issues to wide public and policy audiences across the country. As is true of any successful effort, the AERA Centennial Lecture Series would not be possible without the generous support of many groups, but in particular, the Spencer Foundation. We want to thank our friends at the Spencer Foundation for their ongoing generosity, their support, and the shared commitment to this forum of outreach and public engagement. Again, I want to say we are pleased to be here in Boston this evening. Dr. Russell, <coughs> excuse me, Dr. Russell Skiba, an expert on the overuse of exclusionary discipline and the factors that contribute to racial and ethnic disparities in school discipline, will analyze the history and current status of school discipline reform and discuss how to best develop and maintain safe, productive, and equitable learning climates for all students. In both Boston and across Massachusetts, addressing school discipline issues, including zero tolerance policies and, and the school to prison pipeline has been a major priority of school leaders and policymakers. Hence, this location is an appropriate site of this topic in our sixth lecture. After Dr. Skiba's brief lecture, he will be joined in our living room setting by our moderator and three experts. And so it's not to overdo my reference to how clean this living room is in comparison to my living room at home. I will say be very happy that we're not in my living room at home. But they will make brief initial remarks to kick off the conversation, but we very much want those in the audience to feel part of our living room and that open discussion. And an, an important aim of this lecture indeed is to connect research to policy and practice considerations in the community. So we want to hear from you about your experiences as educators, as parents, as leaders of organizations, and as researchers struggling with what's next so that we can better understand how to take that research and translate it into policies and practice that matter right here. 
Before we begin, I want to share a few words about Dr. Spiva. Russ is a professor in the school psychology program in the School of Education at Indiana University. He is also director of the Equity Project at Indiana, a consortium of federal, state, and foundation-funded grants providing evidence to practitioners and policy makers in the areas of school violence, zero tolerance, and equity in education. Russ was a member of the writing team that produced the U.S. Department of Education's document on school safety titled Early Warning, Timely Response, and has testified before the United States Civil Rights Commission, both houses of Congress, and the National Academy of Sciences on issues of school discipline and school violence. Russ has made enormous contributions to our field and I could go on, but I will stop there. So with that brief introduction, I would like to welcome and ask you to join me in welcoming Dr. Russell Skiba. Thank you, Vivian, for that very, very kind welcome. And thank you. I want to thank also the uh, the staff of um, the AERA, um, as along with uh, Vivian Gadsden and Felice Levine, um, the staff here. You just don't understand when you're uh, going to an AERA meeting or one of these events just how much work it is. And these guys um, had a command center all set up with with printers that that, uh, and it, it was quite it's quite something to watch. And it's amazing how well they work in, in terms of of, um, of of keeping these events going on. So, actually, I'd like to hear a hand for the for the staff of AERA. They are they are very very busy. They've got a, another one coming up, the major uh, the uh, conference for AERA in just a couple of weeks. So, there can be no doubt that schools have a dual responsibility when it comes to school discipline. First, to provide a safe and orderly environment in which the process of learning can take place. Second, to maximize attendance and again engagement in that environment. It's the ways through which schools meet those obligations that has been and continues to be a subject of debate, both in academic venues and in the public discourse. A prominent feature of the landscape of discipline is disciplinary <laughs> exclusion that is the use of out-of-school suspension and expulsion. This evening, we'll be talking about the use of exclusionary discipline, its status, its effects and effectiveness, and issues of equity and fairness that accompany its use. We'll also look at alternatives that represent a new approach in promoting school discipline and school safety. Increases in, in excuse me, increases in suspension and expulsion over the past three decades have accompanied the rise of zero tolerance as a disciplinary philosophy beginning in the late 80s and early 90s. Originally associated with the war against drugs, zero tolerance was picked up in schools in the 90s as a get tough approach to disruptive school behavior. Today, suspension and expulsion are widely used tools for discipline in our schools. Suspensions have essentially doubled since the 1970s, from 3.7% of the population in 
to 7.4% of the population by the 2009-2010 school year. Recent reports have shown an increase in out-of-school suspensions, excuse me, have shown a recent decrease in out-of-school suspensions in California, New York City, and the nation. The use of out-of-school suspension is not equally distributed across schools and districts. Dan Lawson and Tia Martinez, analyzing data from the Office for Civil Rights, found a rate of 24% for out-of-school suspension for black students at the secondary level. One of the reasons for the high rates of suspension may be the fact that suspension is used for a wide variety of behavior. Fighting has been found to be a common reason for out-of-school suspension. Beyond that, however, out-of-school suspension is commonly used in response to a number of relatively minor misbehaviors, including defiance and noncompliance, attendance, and general disruption. A lot of us probably have some concerns about why you would use a tool that puts kids out of school for a few days at a time in response to an attendance. One of the assumptions underlying exclusionary discipline is that such punishments have a deterrent effect on punished students and those observing the punishment. In fact, however, students who are suspended are more likely to engage in increased levels of misbehavior in the future. Cheryl Hemphill and her colleagues studying 12 to 16 year olds in the United States and Australia found that out of school suspension was a predictor of future antisocial behavior, even when controlling for a wide range of risk and protective factors. Um, it's again, if, if we think about common sense applications, um, our, our, our high school students, how well does the philosophy of deterrence work when those high school students really can't see, think much beyond, I'm the one who's never going to be caught here. So again, it, our, our research seems to, to, to mirror our common sense. I can see people smiling who have teenagers in the audience. Further, there is little evidence that removal of disruptive students will yield a safer and more effective school climate that is more conducive to learning for those students who will remain. Matthew Steinberg, Elaine Allensworth, and David Johnson analyzed survey and school discipline data from the Chicago Public Schools. They found that among schools with similar demographics, schools with higher rates of safety, excuse me, higher rates of exclusionary discipline had lower ratings of safety from both students and teachers. Rather than supporting the idea that suspension and expulsion contribute to more appropriate or safer schools, available evidence supports the reality of what has come to be called the school-to-prison pipeline, wherein exclusion from school predicts academic disengagement, dropout, and an increased probability of involvement with the juvenile justice system. Let's look at each of those in turn. We know that opportunity to learn is one of the strongest predictors of academic engagement, yet each office disciplinary referral has been estimated to cost 30 to 45 minutes of lost instructional time. In one urban school district, 3,587 African-American males missed a total of 3,714 school days to suspension in one academic year. That figure equates with 20.6 years of lost instructional time. That's a lot of time to, for just a, a, a few kids. This lost opportunity may well account for findings of lower school engagement for those who have been suspended. 
Evidence also shows that suspension is negatively correlated with academic achievement. In a three-year longitudinal analysis, Rhea Perry and Edward Morris found that schools with high rates of usage of out-of-school suspension showed decreased academic achievement over time, even for non-suspended students. In a subsequent analysis, the same researchers found that out-of-school suspension accounted for 20% of the black-white achievement gap in reading. Given these short-term effects on engagement and achievement, it's not surprising that school exclusion has been found to be associated with school dropout. <laughs> Robert Balfons has found that among students suspended in ninth grade, each suspension decreased the odds of high school graduation by 20%. Finally, exclusionary discipline is associated with increased likelihood of contact with the juvenile justice system. The Breaking Schools Rules study tracked all students in the state of Texas over a six-year period from seventh through 12th grade Controlling for more than 80 demographic variables, the researchers found that being suspended or expelled for a discretionary offense, in other words, for a more minor offense, nearly tripled the risk of involvement in the juvenile justice system in the subsequent year. It's important to note that many of these and other studies predicting negative outcomes from exclusionary discipline control for a broad range of covariates, strongly suggesting that suspension and expulsion are in and of themselves risk factors for negative school and life experiences. Above and beyond the influence of other risk factors, such as free and reduced lunch and past behavioral history. So if you're poor, if you're having low achievement, if you have a past behavioral history, those things do place you at risk for increased uh, negative outcomes, such as dropout and involvement with the juvenile justice system. But so does suspension and expulsion, independent of those things, are risk factors. We know that these negative effects of the school-to-prison pipeline do not fall equally on all students, but that disparities in exclusionary discipline affect students by race, disability status, and sexual orientation. What do we know of equity in relationship to exclusionary discipline? Research has been highly consistent in finding disproportionality in discipline for black students. African-American overrepresentation has been found across the spectrum of school discipline, from office referrals to suspension and expulsion to juvenile justice arrests and corporal punishment. According to the most recent data, you have to excuse me, I'm... According to the most recent data from the Office for Civil Rights, black students are 3.5 times more likely than white students to be suspended out of school. Other groups are also at risk for increased exclusionary discipline, although the patterns are more complex. Some studies have found no evidence of overrepresentation and exclusionary discipline for Latino students, while others have found that Latino, Latino students are at increased risk for overrepresentation and discipline at higher grade levels. Asian American students appear to be somewhat underrepresented in disciplinary outcomes, while Native American students have found to be overrepresented. Students with disabilities, especially those with emotional and behavioral disorders, are at increased risk for suspension and expulsion. Finally, emerging data are providing consistent evidence that LGBTQ students have a higher risk for disciplinary exclusion. Some argue that issues of racial disparity and discipline are not really a matter of race, so much as a function of poverty and increased disruptive behavior that flows from being a poor student. 
poor students, students from lower socioeconomic background, are disciplined more frequently. Lower income students are consistently overrepresented in the use of out of school suspension. Yet statistical analyses have found that race remains a significant predictor of black overrepresentation in suspension, even when controlling pot for poverty and holding poverty constant. Thus, while poverty is important in predicting overall rates of exclusionary discipline, it is not sufficient to explain racial disparities in discipline. That's an important distinction to make. Are there racial differences in behavior that can explain the discipline gap? Racial differences in suspension for black students do not in and of themselves indicate bias or school level contribution. Higher rates of suspension could be explained by greater involvement in behaviors that lead to suspension, the so-called differential involvement hypothesis. There is, however, little support in the research literature for the idea that disparities in school discipline are caused by racial differences in behavior. First, Studies comparing the severity of behavior by race typically have found small differences at best. In our study, the color of discipline, looking at disciplinary referrals across 19 middle schools in one large urban district, we found that white students were referred more than black students for what appear to be more objective behaviors, smoking, vandalism, leaving without permission, and obscene language. In contrast, Black students were referred more than white students for disrespect, excessive noise, threat, and loitering. Oftentimes during a kind of presentation, I'll ask my audience to shout out what they see as the major difference. So we might as well do it here. We, it's a, what, 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 do you, what do you see as a difference between those two groups? Subjective. Uh, thank you very much. I, I was afraid we, with this that you guys were a little intimidated by the size of the audience here and, and, and weren't going to respond, but thank you very much. Yeah, there, there's, um, you know, is smoking more serious than disrespect? Is vandalism more serious than threat? Well, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? But it, it's for sure that those behaviors on the right-hand side are more subjective and more interactive. Yes, threat could be a serious behavior but it still depends on the perception of the person being threatened, right? Other studies have found that race remains a significant predictor of school punishment, even after controlling statistically for student misbehavior. Francis Hong and Dewey Cornell looked at a number of, of predictors of behavior, and even where they found differences between blacks and white students, when they controlled for... Um, for uh, those things, race remained a significant predictor uh, above and beyond those behaviors. Finally, even when controlling for teachers' own ratings of disruptive behavior, so, so Catherine Bradshaw and her colleagues went in and um, had teachers rate all of the kids in their classroom, which were the kids engaging in higher rates of disruption. Even when controlling for those teachers' own ratings, teachers still referred a higher proportion of black students uh, to the principal. In sum, the weight of the evidence suggests that racial differences in discipline are not due to differences in rates of, or types of misbehavior by students of different races. As you might expect, differences by race do not go unnoticed among those who are the victims of such disparities. Across a number of studies, higher rates of detention and suspension have been found to be associated with negative perceptions by black students of their school's mm -hmm. climate and racial fairness. 
Such perceptions on the part of students of color subject to a higher rate of school discipline may be part of a dynamic of interacting student and teacher expectations and behavior. Jason Oconifwa, Gregory Walton, and Jennifer Everhart argue that expectations on the part of teachers, both teachers and students, can lead to what they call a vicious cycle. Teachers fearing disorder in the classroom rely upon increasingly harsh treatment of students who are racially stigmatized. Mm -hmm. At the same time, student awareness of stereotypes and fears of not belonging may lead racially stigmatized students to disengage or mistrust their teachers. I call it mutually assured discipline. What contributes to suspension and expulsion? We tend to assume a relatively invariant path in school discipline from student behavior to teacher referral to administrative consequence. <laughs> Yet the pathway from any particular student infraction to a disciplinary consequence is in fact complex and nonlinear. Student attitude and behavior are strong determinants of the likelihood of suspension. But student behavior and attitude are not sufficient for determining who will be suspended. Mm -hmm. Teacher judgments that a behavior you. is too severe to be handled at the classroom level are influenced by a host of factors. For instance, a student's disciplinary history, the immediate context of the behavior, the teacher's general tolerance level and skill in behavior management, and the resources available to the teacher for managing disruptive behavior. Suspension is also determined by school level variables. In a multi-level study of predictors of school suspension funded by the William T. Grant Foundation, we found that the probability of suspension was jointly determined by variables at three levels. First, the severity of behavior or the type of infraction. One would expect that the more severe behavior would lead to a higher likelihood that a kid would be suspended, right? Second, student characteristics such as gender, race, and socioeconomic status. We've talked about all of those things and how they contribute to suspension. Third, school characteristics, including the perspective of the principal on discipline. We queried principals and found uh, differences between principals who supported zero tolerance and those who supported more preventive uh, uh, methods. Um, so this wasn't surprising to us that, that all three of these things, the severity of the behavior, the characteristics of the kid, and the, um, the characteristics of the school would all make a difference. What was somewhat surprising to us were the results as far as the importance of race. Um, we found that school level there, excuse me, we found that race remained a significant predictor to suspension regardless of the type of infraction or individual characteristics, including socioeconomic status. But when we entered school characteristics into the equation, including principal perspective on, on discipline, those did account for racial contributions to out-of-school suspension. This suggests that school characteristics are better predictors of racial disparities in discipline than our type of infraction or poverty. What should we do instead? There are alternatives that have been found to have an impact on the rates of exclusionary discipline, and in some cases, racial disparities in discipline. These could be categorized as relationship building, structural interventions, and emotional literacy. In terms of relationship building, restorative practices have begun to be implemented in schools and districts throughout the nation. 
Originally based on victim offender reconciliation programs, restorative practices have expanded to include such, excuse me, it's easy for you to say, <laughs> including such procedures as restorative circles, including not only the victim and offender, but also teachers, students, and even parents. In the Denver Public Schools, training in restorative interventions was made available to all teachers in the school district. In an evaluation of that implementation, Yolanda Anion and her colleagues found that students who participated in restorative interventions were less likely to be referred to the office or be suspended in the following semester. Interestingly enough, racial gaps in suspensions for black students persisted, however. Mentoring, teacher mentoring, has also been found to be effective in developing more and a more inclusive school climate. Anne Gregory and her colleagues described an implementation of the My Teaching Partner Secondary Program, a professional development program at the high school level that assigns teachers a coach who works with them to review videotapes focusing on their relationships with students. A randomized control trial showed that students in the program teachers' classrooms had a lower probability of exclusionary discipline than students in the control classrooms. In addition, there was a smaller black-white disparity in dis discipline in the treatment classrooms. Other interventions focus on the structure of discipline. School-wide Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports, or PBIS, is a structured, multi-tiered system of support that relies upon review of data and clear specification of school expectations. When implemented with fidelity, PBIS has led to decreases in office disciplinary referrals and improvements in rated school safety. In response to findings that PBIS has not been sufficient to reduce racial disparities in discipline, however, culturally responsive models of PBIS are being introduced and piloted. Claudia Vincent and her colleagues have integrated restorative practices in PBIS in a model they call school-wide positive and restorative discipline. It'll come up eventually. There it is. Results indicated that higher rates of perceived, results indicated higher rates of perceived racial fairness and marked improvements in office disciplinary referrals in general. What's especially striking is that those referrals went to zero for African-American, Asian, and multiracial students. Another structural approach that has reduced exclusionary discipline and disparities has been the use of the Virginia Threat Assessment Guidelines a protocol for assessing the level of danger associated with student threats. Excuse me, I'm gonna to have to switch, try and switch. Uh... Implemented in schools across Virginia, use of the threat assessment guidelines was found to be associated with a 19 point reduction in the number of long-term suspensions. Schools using the guidelines had a significantly lower gap in suspensions between black and white students than schools not using the guidelines. Finally, another promising alternative intervention builds emotional literacy through social-emotional learning, programs that specifically teach emotional and social skills. In the Cleveland Metropolitan School District, comprehensive reform efforts focused in part 
on the implementation of an empirically validated social and emotional learning program. In this case, the Promoting Alternative Thinking Strategies Program, or PATHS. Evaluation by David Osher and his colleagues found that for schools with medium to high level of levels of implementation of the PATHS program, student surveys indicated that students felt safer over time in those classes and schools, and disciplined incidents decreased by almost 36%, again, in those schools using medium to high implementation of the PATHS program. Findings concerning the effects of suspension and expulsion have begun to have important policy implications. In response to findings on the negative outcomes of exclusionary discipline, the federal government issued guidelines aimed at reducing the use of out-of-school suspension and clarifying when racial disparities in discipline place a school at risk for federal intervention. Numerous states throughout the country have begun to change their state code of conduct. California has passed legislation prohibiting schools from using suspension and expulsion under the category willful defiance. Here in Massachusetts, Chapter 222 recognizes that exclusion is a last resort and that all possible interventions must be tried first and that academic supports must be provided for students suspended out of school. A number of state legislatures are currently considering a ban on suspensions for young children, especially preschool and kindergarten. Finally, school districts throughout the nation, including Denver, Oakland, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and here in Boston, of course, have revised their disciplinary practices to reduce suspensions. And I'm sure we'll be talking more about that in the panel uh, and, and the specifics for chapter 222. Yet there is also pushback as for example, in the state of Oklahoma, where legislation that is, is being considered that would allow increased use of out-of-school suspension at, at the elementary school level, but also allow teachers to determine whether in fact a student would be allowed back in their classroom after an out-of-school suspension. Nebraska is considering legislation allowing teachers to use physical force in the classroom in response to student disruption. Research on the effects of state and district policy change is needed, especially research that can provide insight not only into the effects of such interventions, but the process that districts and schools are engaging in in their attempts to, to reform school discipline. Important questions include, to what extent have federal and state reforms succeeded in creating change at the local level? Are the alternatives successful in terms of maintaining a safe climate and improving school achievement? Perhaps most importantly, what resources and professional development do schools need in order to be able to successfully implement new models of school discipline? In closing, we stand at a crossroads in our understanding of the purpose and function of school discipline. The data continue to show that exclusionary discipline is a risk factor in and of itself, especially for members of marginalized groups. There is a rapidly emerging set of studies identifying alternatives to suspension and expulsion. The data also seem to show that reducing racial gaps in discipline is more difficult and will almost certainly necessitate more explicit attention to issues of race in implementing those interventions. And is research conducted by uh, members of AERA uh, have shown that how difficult it is to talk about the issue of race 
And yet that's an issue that we're going to clearly have to be willing to do to, to achieve the kind of reductions in the disciplinary gap that we're hoping for. We've reached a point where the detrimental effect of current disciplinary practices has been strongly demonstrated. What is needed are strong studies that examine the effects and effectiveness of a full range of alternatives that can meet the twin goals of keeping schools environments safe and productive while also keeping the maximum number of students engaged and present at school. Our students deserve no less. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Russ. That was such a stimulating lecture and the data are simply compelling um, and speak to so much of what we need to be able to do as we continue to do research and as um, practitioners and scholars and policymakers, how we can take up the issues that you've discussed tonight. So thank you again thank you, for Vivian. such thank a great you. talk. We're going to ask you to move over to the to the living room that once again does not look like my own. And we are going to move into the forum right now. We are privileged this evening to have a wonderful moderator, Deborah Becker, an award-winning journalist. Deborah is a senior correspondent and host at WBUR, where her reporting focuses on mental health, criminal justice, and education. Before coming to WBUR, Deborah worked at Monitor Radio, the broadcast arm of the Christian Science Monitor newspaper, and also worked at several Boston area radio stations. Deborah will introduce our three distinguished commentators who will each briefly discuss the relevance of this research that Russ has presented to us, to students, educators, and others in Boston and how it connects to area policies, programs, and practices. Now I would like to invite Deborah and our three commentators to come to the living room and we will start our open forum. This is my last lecture as president of AERA and as you're coming up. So I want to take this opportunity to thank Felice Levine and the wonderful AERA staff and to thank you again for being with us today and for caring about these issues that are so dear and important to us as a field. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. Congratulations. I didn't know it was your last one as president. Uh, thank you to the association and to the library uh, for holding this discussion. And thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, what a great turnout. Thanks to everyone uh, online who's listening as well. It's a really important topic. And Russ, your research is terrific. A really comprehensive look on, on what's happening with this issue of school discipline. And it really does affect all of us. I know we have a lot of educators in the room and obviously you're directly affected. You're in the classroom and you're doing this, but everyone's affected. Parents, uh, family members of kids in school, all of us in society are, are affected and, and see the consequences of, of what's happening 
happening. So it's a really important topic and um, I'm, I'm really glad to be here tonight. Just a little bit about format. Um, our panelists will each be presenting uh, their reaction to Russ's research for about five minutes. And then we'll talk a little bit, but we're also opening it up to questions from you. We really wanna have a discussion with all of you. So there are microphones that you can probably see in the room. There are three of them. And when we do have questions, please go up to one of the microphones and feel free to ask the panelists uh, a question that you feel uh, either wasn't addressed or you would like some clarification on. So I'm going to introduce you to our panelists. Uh, to my immediate left here is Matt. And I'm at, I have your title right here. So I'm just gonna make sure that I have everything correct here. Matt is the Education Project Director with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice. Uh, he's been there since 2014 and he deals with several education matters, including of course, school discipline, special education and student assignment. And Matt has also served on education and school discipline related advisory boards for the Council of State Governments and other agencies. Uh, also with us is William Rodriguez. Uh, he is an assistant professor and chair of juvenile justice and youth advocacy at Wheelock College. He's been in the criminal and juvenile justice arena for 30 years, and he serves on a number number, number, number of local, local and national boards related uh, to the issues, issues of juvenile justice and uh, youth advocacy and reform. And Rochelle is with us as well. Rochelle Bennett is an Associate Commissioner, Commissioner of Student and Family Support at the, at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And she oversees several programs and initiatives designed to support student success and she's also very passionate about youth leadership. She told me before we started. So, so that's our panelists. Yes, They're going to be speaking in this order. They'll present a little bit, and as I said, we'll ask questions, and then we'll open it up uh, for questions uh, from you as well. Now, this is a living room, so we we are hoping to have uh, really an engaged dialogue with all of you as well. Uh, so, Matt, yeah, yeah. So, uh, if this were my living room, I think I'd talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it's it's such a pleasure to be here uh, with with this group. I wish you guys were hanging out in my living room all the time, uh, especially to have Russ Kiba um, and to bring this. Um, where Russ left it with us standing at a crossroads is the piece that resonates with me so much because this is as an issue of the school to prison pipeline is something that we've seen tremendous change in in the last dozen years in the last 30 years, right? Yeah, 30 years. School discipline uh, today looks a heck of a lot different than it probably did for most of you um, uh, when you were a student, okay? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's something where maybe the hallways look the same, the desks look the same, some of the books look the same, but that doubling of the out-of-school suspension rate that we've seen uh, uh, has, has decimated right? The educational futures yeah. of so many of our youth. And when we look at who that affects and where that affects and in the heart of our communities of color, right? Um, particularly uh, for our young men, uh, these are the first students who are harmed by these policies. And with that though, we've also seen this tremendous turning of tides as a nation on this issue. We saw such dramatic change uh, in, in the Obama administration era in terms of federal and national attention to these issues. But the thing that really strikes me most and where I really draw from Russ's lecture and from his body of research is that, you know, 
both nationally and here in Massachusetts, the reasons that we've been seeing change on these issues is we found ways for parents and students and educators and advocates of all stripes, pain in the butt attorneys like me, um, to speak with one voice on these issues. Um, and that's what pushed people forward. And that's why when we have people who, together with Ann Wilson, who have really godfathered this field of research, um, uh, uh, have done it in a way that is in plain language and is immediately accessible to me as an advocate, to the parent organizers that we've worked with and that have sat down at the table with you, uh, to the students, to the educators. That's how we're able to do this work together. And here in Massachusetts, that's no different. And if I could look beyond the first two rows with these bright lights, I'm sure I'd be able to see more people than Jennifer DeBarros, who's taken this on as a parent in New Bedford. And um, Nima Avasia, who's taking this on as a teacher just up the street at the McCormick Middle School, and Mark Warren, who's done this as a sociologist to tell the stories of these parents and students who have organized around this issue. In Massachusetts, we have seen the beginning of this turning of the tide, but what happens next for us at this crossroads is what's most critical. When uh, Massachusetts passed a new law to change the way we handle discipline in schools, Chapter 222, it did it for all the right reasons. Back when that law was passed, about 64% of our out-of-school suspensions in the state were not for guns or drugs or violence or even bullying, but for what the state itself categorized as nonviolent, non-criminal, non-drug-related behaviors. And it was within this catch-all and far more subjective category that we saw the greatest racial disparities as a state. Um, and so we have the right reasons to change our laws. And in it, we have a law that does a lot of good things. It provides more due process protections for parents and students. It requires, as Russ said, that even if a student is suspended, they have the right to make academic progress. It requires that with each disciplinary incident, you push to consider ways to re-engage the student in learning. And before things build up to something as big as a long-term suspension, that you demonstrate that you've tried alternatives to suspension to address these things. And thanks to folks like Rochelle, it's caused us as a state to collect and look at the data and the disparities that we see and figure out ways to address it. But all of these reforms are only so helpful, as Russ said, um, uh, uh, if our schools are given the support they need to implement them. When I was a teacher, the only professional development I got around school discipline was not to smile until November, right? This, you know, um, uh, so, hey, so we have this, we have this moment as a state where we are doing the right things uh, on paper, by law, and also by consensus. But if we can't come together and support each other as educators and advocates and parents and students in doing this, we're going to struggle. And so with my zero minute sign up, I need to flag one way that that's happening so beautifully here. And I don't know if anybody from BSAC is in the room, but the Boston Student Advisory Council knows that uh, if they're going to make sure their peers, these high school leaders from across Boston Public Schools, if their peers know what their disciplinary rights are, the first place they're going to check is on their phone. So they created the world's first, the nation's first school discipline smartphone app to make sure you know what your rights are so that you can advocate for yourself, which is what something we want all of our high school students to learn in the first place, uh, and so that we can make sure that everybody knows 
what the rules are and can be on the same page at the same time. And it's in those opportunities where I feel like we can move this work forward together as communities and as a state. Thank you. Thank you. Willie. Hello, everyone. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Thank you. Makes me feel embraced, welcome as a Latino, right? We live to embrace. And that's what I always teach also parents and teachers, that in order to become culturally responsive and sensitive, and maybe to the extent that you become proficient and competent, um, that it just takes a few little body language movements, a smile, uh, a welcome to embrace these young people that are given to you by families to be able to be educated in a place that they feel safe. And the first uh, starts with the greeting. And I say that because most of my work, um, and now I'm into that sort of Dr. Skiba mode, intellectual scholar, because I always was telling, I was prefacing my commentaries with my colleagues here earlier, and I said, I was one of those kids who sometimes teachers felt that my mannerisms, because I spoke with a lot of my hands, were too violent. Mm. So I got an interpretation of that, because I spoke with an accent, or maybe... I said a few Spanish words in between. They assumed that I was thinking in Spanish, so I couldn't write well in English. And I always say that being Puerto Rican, all right, does not make me an expert in the 26 subcultures that make our Latino community. We all have our differences and nuances and idiosyncrasies. And I say that because it's very important as we face this dilemma of English language learning students immigrant students coming into our schools, particularly the prevalence of it is in our Boston public schools. And we're having these issues of language being construed as learning disabilities, that while we dismantle a law, bilingual, transitional bilingual education in Massachusetts, because we bought into an UNS referendum that took a well-run, well, at least a well um, configured bilingual education law that did the best to develop our children, but maybe administrative bureaucratically wasn't working as efficiently. We dismantle it through this sort of xenophobic mentality that to learn English, you could take about a year to learn it and master it. And what we created was a high level of dropout rates at the ninth grade level ELL students. We, we, we were misinformed, um, including our own communities, who felt that that was the best interest to vote for that referendum. And what we have is this issue called the school-to-prison pipeline. We looked at the data, and right now everything nationally is being construed. We're going even further in our advocacy to look at it from the cradle to, to, to prison. And I, like I said, we were in the comments about my background. I've been in 30 years in this business called criminal justice. And now I'm in the juvenile justice arena because I believe that after running alternative to incarceration programs, after seeing representing people who were going into prison, um, I feel that if you look at discipline and we have to really, really challenge this notion of what we feel is the best method of educating our children. I don't think we should have even the word discipline, except when it comes to focus in your academic work, be disciplined in what you're producing. Because if you use discipline and you start creating the deans and titling it and giving it credence, then we're gonna always be in that punishment mode. And in a country that we incarcerate 2.3 million people, number one in the world, 
We won the Super Bowl of that, <laughs> right? But look at the outcome and the impact of that. I always say one child in jail, one day, one child in jail is one day too many. Uh, because I always talk to um, families who are affected and impacted by our decisions. And we talk about racial and ethnic disparities, which Dr. Skidward noted in his thing, which I have a colleague, Lindsay Heffernan here, who's working in our juvenile justice sector, and she runs the JDAI alternative, which is looking at racial and ethnic disparities. The impact of your decision when you have that child to suspend and expel them will be that four-walled cell. That cost us about $150,000 or $200,000 to build one jail cell. It costs us $52,000 to $75,000 to annually house an inmate in our jails. And it only costs us $9,000 to $15,000 on the average to educate a child. You do the math. You do the math. For me, those are the realities. And when I hear Miss Matthews, who lives in New Orleans, who was affected by the Katrina hurricane, and she lived in the Lower Acre, who had a child who was because they had a learning disability and because he had a behavioral anger issue because his father wasn't present in his home, so he was taking it out a lot on people, a teacher construed that behavior as adverse violent, brought in the security guards, officers, and police, and he ended up in the Tallulah Juvenile, just in the juvenile Prison in Louisiana, which was considered at one time in Louisiana the worst juvenile prison in this country. So... The ramifications of our decisions in this discipline approach leads to the kinds of things that hurt families and hurt our children. And we have to create a system, a paradigm shift in our thinking that no matter what challenges that child brings you, they all can learn. They all can learn. Failure and difficulty are feedback to coin an efficacy institute training model, the growth mindset. You get smarter using effective effort. You get smarter by believing these children and you avoid that senseless piece of pushing them out so they end up in the system that we should be running out of business is our criminal justice system. So that's what I put as a challenge out to you and I will wait for the questions and concerns and inquiries that come out of that. So looking forward to that. Thank you. Michelle, thank you. So what we've heard tonight is, is compelling and it's a great concern. There's also some promise um, in some of the interventions that have been mentioned and clearly a need to um, conduct further research and explore this further. I'm going to share with you um, some of the approaches that the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education um, have undertaken with schools and districts. So related to the chapter 222 state law, as well as federal IDEA requirements, the department now annually identifies schools and districts based on their rates of removal, suspension and expulsion, and based on their rates of long-term suspension, as well as disproportionate suspensions um, related to race and ethnicity and uh, disability status. So this past June, we, we decided to create a professional learning network. And we invited our um, 31 identified districts that were identified at either the school and or district level and asked them to participate with us in this learning community because we don't feel like we have all the answers or anyone does and that we need to learn together. So yeah. we have engaged schools to 
learn with and from each other, as well as from others in this arena, and engage them so that the department can learn how can we be helpful over time to the cohorts with which we work, as well as to the broader community. One of the requirements of Chapter 222 is that all school principals in the state periodically reflect on and analyze their student discipline data inclusive by selected populations and to determine locally whether changes in practice are needed. So with our professional learning network, we are requiring an action plan that is being submitted to us in two phases. One focused on efforts this year, one focused on plans for next year. And um, we, we really have a goal of not telling schools and districts simply stop suspending or don't suspend at all, but rather to take the approach that is more positive than punitive, rather to say, what are our expectations as a community? How can we engage staff and students and family in setting those clear expectations and teaching about them and then responding to challenging behavior in appropriate and helpful ways that can be a learning experience for the students and the adults, the learning about strategies, learning about what supports might be needed and so forth. So we have some data um, that schools and districts have shared with us to date to say that they've seen progress um, compared with prior years. Uh, we don't yet have the data from this school year, the first school year with this professional learning network. We'll have that um, after this, after it's submitted to the department this summer. Um, but we're looking forward to learning more. I can give you a few examples of some of the efforts um, underway in some of these participating schools and districts. And you know, some of it is, is um, reflective of what you've heard today is, is some promising practices or research and evidence-based practices. So we have a number of schools and districts that have undertaken PBIS or restorative practices. Um, we have um, schools and districts that have decided to no longer have suspension being out of class be a consequence for missing class time, like cutting, skipping, truancy. And we've had them look, at, we've had some schools and districts think about what are alternatives um, to the suspension and what, what are alternative ways to provide supports and preventative efforts and de-escalation training and strategies for all staff and partnerships with community providers, um, police and others so that all students can be in school engaged in learning as much as possible. So one, um, one last comment is that we are aiming to do this at the state and local level in a way that isn't siloed and isolated. So it's not here's a rethinking discipline effort, but how can this be undertaken in a context of creating safe and supportive learning environments and how can efforts be integrated into broader needs and assessments and activities that, that ultimately will help all students be prepared to be successful in school and after school. Thank you. I, I, I think I, I would just like to start it by maybe stepping back a little bit and wondering uh, how exactly did we get here? 
to this dramatic change in discipline. And Russ, I think I want to ask you this. Uh, 20 to 30 years ago, we didn't see these kind of suspension rates. And um, we certainly didn't have police officers in so many schools and everything else. Uh, so so really, what was, was the thinking? I mean, I understand that there was a war on drugs. We had super predator kids. And we had all kinds of fear going on in the country at that time. But the schools bought in. Right. So Absolutely. so what what was happening and how, how did we get to this point where discipline has become such an issue? Well, the, um, the as you said, zero tolerance grew out of the, the war on drugs um, as early as the early as, say, 1982. Um, Thirty some sailors were suspended from a, a work on a submarine for having a trace amount of marijuana in their lockers. And, and even at that time, the captain of the. Um, of the ship said, how am I going to sail this ship without sailors? So there was criticism even from the very first, in, but, but it was picked up um, by the Reagan administration. They used it to, um, uh, you could have your, even your, your boat that you used for water skiing be impounded uh, and sent to federal court um, as much as, as a, a major drug dealer at that time. Um, the uh, policy was discontinued when the uh, uh, one sailor was was found on the Woods Hole oceanographic vessel, and that was uh, that was impounded. Um, but as you said, schools picked this up, and it was uh, I, I think an effective soundbite. Um, Pedro Nogueira said, "You know, if you don't really know what to do, and schools were feeling like they didn't know what to do about violence, which, by the way." There was uh, this strong fear of, of violence in school increasing. There was increased community violence, but there was never any evidence of, 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 of increased in school violence. But Pedro said, um, you know, if you don't know what to do, then it's good to have sound bites that make it sound like you know what to do. Um, so that, that's really the way the, the policy got momentum. It was picked up, I think, uh, as, a, as, a, as a good sound bite for politicians at that time. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to me, we talk about the effect of Columbine and, and, right. uh, it, it's, it was very interesting that, that, um, we saw some increase in the use of more negative, um, procedures, more presence of police, um, more use of zero tolerance, but we also saw the beginning of beginnings of, um, a movement that pushed back and said, wait a minute, there isn't, there isn't really research going on here that supports this. Um, we don't really know that this is working. We saw a lot of that begin have its beginnings at that point, and that I think led to uh, movements that really became um, um, more widely supported in the late early two thousands um, uh, with the Breaking Schools Rules report, with the Discipline Disparities Collaborative, with um, uh, good efforts by such uh, organizations as the Lawyers Committee and, and LDF. Um, so it, we, we've reached a point where that is still there, but fortunately we have really good advocates out there as well that are putting some pressure to continue to roll back those policies that hurt kids. I'm wondering, uh, Matt, you mentioned this, the 64% rate yeah. uh, of where we were prior to 22 in Massachusetts. Yeah. What is it now? Like, how did that affect the suspension rate here in Massachusetts, what do we know about it? And where's the weakness, do you think? 
Sure. So our out-of-school suspension rates have dropped, and they dropped particularly in the first year of implementation for those Category 18, nonviolent, non-criminal, non-drug-related behaviors. They still comprise about half of our out-of-school suspensions as a state, however. What was promising about the first year of implementation of Chapter 222 was that we saw across the board drops in out-of-school suspension rate for students of all races, uh, for English language learners, for students with disabilities, for students of a lower socioeconomic status, um, and most promising, the drop in suspension rate was faster for uh, Black and Latino students than white students, right? So the students who were being most targeted and were feeling the brunt of these practices, per a report from our friends at Massachusetts Appleseed, Julia is here tonight. Um, uh, and what, uh, where we stand concerned now, right, is that we're in the third year of implementation. Thanks to a very responsive State Department of Education, we have data from the last school year and have had the time to look at it. And while our rates have stayed the same roughly as a state, we're starting to see those disparities that we hoped would keep shrinking start to increase again. And they're increasing most uh, in, in some of our major cities. Holyoke had been suspending one in every five students before the law. That dropped down to 5% out of school <laughs> suspension rate that's since doubled, right? So, so we're, we're in this bumpy spot where we as a state said, okay, we're gonna stop doing this, right? And I think we probably cut away some of the unnecessary suspensions, uh, but we're struggling to make sure that this law is properly implemented, that our educators are supported in doing it. And what we fear is the calls that we get and folks like Elizabeth McIntyre get where, uh, where the parent says, they keep telling me to pick up my son. They keep calling me to pick up my son. And it doesn't show up as a suspension, which means it doesn't get tracked in the data that Rochelle uses, which means that the parent doesn't get the due process protections they need to make sure that their child keeps learning. If I'm an educator, maybe I'm saying, you know what, I have a balance here. Yeah. I have a responsibility mm -hmm. to all students, not just the students who are causing or disrupting things. Yeah. And and I have a lot of other things on my plate, yeah. right? I mean, sure. I'm sure you've heard this, right? Yeah. So I have to remove that student from the classroom because I've got 30 other kids here who need an education. Yeah. So yeah. what do you say to that educator? Well, I'm hoping I'm speaking for someone out there tonight, yeah, but no. there's a balance and there's professional development yeah. that needs to be done. Are those things accompanying the, the changes that we want to make here? In this? I mean, that's, I, that's ultimately our concern, right? right? That, um, that our educators feel the support they need to make that change because the transition from a, uh, a zero tolerance based approach to one in which every disciplinary consequence warrants discretion. Right? warrants consideration of, is this in the best interest of the student, right, uh, is a big change. And uh, we, you know, we could look at the research and our friend Bria Perry uh, has, has uh, done enough research that I think we could call it the class clown theory, right, which means that once you kick out one student of class, the next behavioral challenge is going to pop up, right? <laughs> like, I might have been the first class clown, but if I was kicked out, somebody else is going to step into that role right after. And, and so we know that in terms of effective classroom management, some of the things that we've relied on actually haven't proved effective, right? And, and suspension is perhaps the biggest one that's made us concerned. Uh, and so the key is when we know we have practices now that work, that work to address and reduce racial disparities if done with fidelity uh, and have worked in districts, 
that are harder and more cash strapped than ours, we have to figure out ways to redouble our efforts, and make sure everybody feels like they can move that work forward. Michelle, maybe you can respond a little bit to that too as well. What do we do to support teachers to be able to, to do some of this and, and make what's what's really a profound change, mm -hmm. I think, uh, in thinking and, and how people discipline. Is there support for teachers to be able to do this? Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a very important point. And I think that we've heard from schools and districts that this is, you know, the crux of one part of the challenge of this work is how to help teachers be able to prevent some of the challenging behavior and de-escalate when it starts, as well as identify when there may be other kinds of supports that are needed, whether they be mental health or other mm -hmm. types Come of services that might be able to be provided. Mm -hmm. And we've heard from administrators as well that there's some shifting in practices. So rather than having a standard practice of teachers sending students out oh. of the class when there's an issue, rather help the teachers be able to handle it in class wherever possible and have people come into the class when needed as well to help when possible keep the students there or if they need to step out of class to get some type of supports or cool down that there's some vehicle for them to do that other than them being suspended or thrown out so that there's a place for them for the students to get what they need and then return as soon as possible to the classroom environment. You know, I, I read uh, an essay uh, not too long ago, and we had reposted it on our website at WBUR uh, just today, actually, and it was about a principal who um, engages in corporal punishment of students. This apparently is allowed in, in some states, and he paddles students when, when they misbehave, and he thinks that, that this is okay. He actually thinks it's better for students. So I, I think that, in a way, a, a lot of these disciplinary procedures are reflective of an attitude, and you touched upon this a little bit, Willie, right? It's, it's yeah. a very profound attitude of what we think about punishment, what we think about behavior, what we think about students. And I want you to talk about, if you can, how we address that, because, you know, we can have all the policies right, uh, that we want, and we can have all the data that we want, but there's something that's, there's a profound bias, and there's a profound attitude about how we deal with these issues that really is the crux, crux of this, right? So, so what do we do? Well, you know, <laughs> well, like I said before, I, I, it's an attitude. It's also a psychology, right? So if we think that we can modify behavior or teach a lesson, we tend to go immediately to punishment right? Discipline is the word we use, but then it can go into punishment. And this is one of the things we battle. Like I said before, when I talked about the prison system, oh, prison right. industrial college, the profit making business, it's yes, we make more money out of punishing people. In America, we make money out of punishing people. You can't even, like I said before, you can't double park without being cited, right? That's right. We have a budget crisis, so we increase our citations. Arrests in this country are going down, right? And so you have a tough on crime attitude. And yet if crime is going down, right? But arrests are going up. What is justifying the arrest? You have a shortfall somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if we're gonna give teachers support, we gotta not only give them professional development, but we have to put money because a lot of these policies, we institute our unfunded mandates. They get lost in translation. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is that when we talk about creating disciplinary policies or even policies, which is said use expulsion and suspension as a last resort, we normally do not put the training and orientation that it takes. These are longitudinal exercises mm -hmm. that also require us adults to develop our mindset, 
that we're open. So I take to the teacher that may may feel that one person is the behavioral issue. Well, the responsibility of the teacher is to teach every child, not just Amen. the 29 that are not giving them problems. Okay. We did this when we put and pose really um, <laughs> these conditions under the MCAS standards of proficiency. So teach to the test. And if you're gonna be evaluated by it and a teacher in making their most benevolent, well-intended approach is saying, I gotta teach to the test now because I gotta take those 29 students and get them to the proficiency level. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try to push this one out because they're not gonna get me up to speed because I'm gonna be evaluated by all the 30 of them. So I'm making a decision that I have power and control. And this is an issue of power and control. When you use punishment and discipline, it becomes a, your default for your negligence and failure to want to do your job to teach that child. Amen. And that includes not only teachers, I'm talking about administrators and parents and everything. We often use discipline, which is our psychology, to control a certain behavior that we think it's going to improve their ability to re-engage and feel good about learning and about doing social activities. And we have a dropout issue. So how do you re-engage all of those that we drop out back into an environment where they see going through metal detectors, they see police searching them, so even students themselves, young people have told me straight out from the street and straight at the ones that I've seen in the system and I've interviewed in prisons and in, and in detention facilities, so they said, why should I go back to a school that's going to treat me less than? In New Orleans, every young black youth that you talk to there has a, a, a belief system that they're either going to die by the time they get to 18 years old or get arrested. That's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when you have a system that has an attitude that gives up on these kids because of the context of their color, or their gender, or their ethnicity, or their orientation, then we have a problem. Now, what's the solution to that? Yes, you can make, build as much awareness and control, but it's really hitting people where it counts. Look at the impact that your decision has over that child eventually. We've done more to do disincentives of educating young people than we do more of motivating them to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so I challenge Everyone, and, you know, and even if you know, I don't have all the answers, I want, but I've seen enough to be passionate and frustrated and almost angry. Anger is good because it changes my mm -hmm. that those realities to huh? a real positive uh, mm -hmm. advocacy reform agenda that I hope that gets the people that I want to It looks like uh, we have some folks with questions. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, Thank you, um, Russell. Could you just step up a little bit closer yeah. to Mike? Yeah. Okay, thank you, Russell Stieber, for the presentation. I really, really um, appreciated it. And to the living room panel, getting cozy there. But um, <laughs> I wanted to speak to the educator piece. I'm an educator in the Boston Public Schools. Very, very proud of uh, being a teacher in the Boston Public Schools. And I wanted to pick up on the way forward from um, Russell Skiba's uh, presentation. And I wanna talk about resources for the educators. Boston has just cut millions, millions from its budget. And I'm angry. I'm a union activist. And, I, and in my school, I see uh, teachers, most teachers, not all, but most teachers dedicated to PBIS, we're a PBIS school in Boston. Mm -hmm. We give up our lunch, 
yeah. after school, before school, to support students. I have kids, now it's MCAS, so I have kids coming down to, I'm a pre-K teacher, coming down to my classroom to just kind of gather themselves after the horrendous MCATs that they've had to take. What we don't have as support staff, we need, you know, it takes money to do this, as was pointed out earlier. I want that prison money. <laughs> I want that prison money mm -hmm. because that's what it takes. You can be the most professional. I consider myself very professional and very qualified teacher. Uh, I used to do... Um, work with at-risk before I became a teacher, at-risk kids. You need counselors, social workers. You need uh, more than just... So that's my point. Second, um, what I would like to ask is, um, is DESI collecting infant data on classroom push-outs? Not school push-outs, but classroom push-outs. Because sometimes kids, I've seen this in other schools, get pushed out of the classroom with a volunteer to teach them, and they're the most challenging kids. So is there data on classroom push-outs? Because that's a form of isolation, social isolation, and intellectual isolation. Okay. So the Desi, oh, I had one. What is higher education doing? Because I think I don't think higher education is preparing teachers to teach in an urban public school. They're prepared to teach in a suburban, but not urban or rural. Okay, that's that's a lot of questions. First, we're going to ask Rochelle about the collecting of data, and then about about support money for districts. What, what do we know about that? Okay, so um, not enough <laughs> is, is is the answer to that question, but. Um, I don't think that the department collects the kind of push-out data that um, you're speaking to. There are certain kinds of data that the department collects in terms of educational setting and um, in terms of um, whether there's this particular you know, incident and the disciplinary or associated results. But um, that most, most of that data, I believe, is at the local level that needs to be analyzed um, and reflected upon. In terms of resources, unfortunately, this the the new requirements related to Chapter 222, it didn't provide additional resources at either the state or local level. So sort of collectively across the board um, and on many related topics, we really need to see what are the low cost options and what resources can we find available, whether it be through um, partnerships um, in terms of perhaps training that can be offered to teachers in terms of what are some practices that can be undertaken um, that don't you know cost the kind of money that like wide-scale training um, would cost and how to take advantage of peer learning um, across staff and teachers or across districts um, I think it I think it will be a continual challenge to to you know to consider how how to best meet the needs and, and to move this work forward. And, and Willie, in terms of oh, also higher, higher education, higher yeah, piece, um, as a, you make a great point because one of my pet peeves is um, the way we're preparing the people we want to make the difference out there with. So we have really have to start with challenging also our higher ed institutions around um, taking away also the traditional pedagogy of uh, educational uh, academic training that goes on we have to filter more creativity around developing teachers that understand cultural competency cultural proficiency language everything from 
bilingual, another language instruction, um, creativity around developing those skill sets at the higher ed level, because we're going to throw them into these sectors. They need to know and understand that the dynamic in urban schools is different than a suburban school, that there are a lot of issues who are concerning school and pseudo prison when it comes to rural, suburban and urban. But all those sectors create different types of idiosyncrasies and challenges for teachers. So I think teacher preparation is one way to attack the problem, because if you can train them earlier, they're better prepared to deal with these sectors and deal with the changes. And we have to bring them to the classroom. So while they're in training, they need to see, teach, be shadowed, they need to be shadowing you and be mentored by those teachers that they expect to be and who do best by teaching all our students in every cultural context that they're in. So I think that higher ed is very central to this dynamic rather than just collecting research because research can be put on a shelf, but we need to put this in practice. And how do we develop the practice and approaches that uh, Dr. Skiba is, is demonstrating here by the, the challenges he's posing by his research. We have to do better at using that research to also train our te future teachers and our future people who are going to be in these sectors that affect this, this problem. And we don't just tell them like, like Matt. Don't smile until November, right? Is yeah, that's true. More, by right? the way, if they, they would have suspended to me every day <laughs> for smiling. And by the way, I wanted to add to Matt's comment on Chapter 222. While we now understand the reductions and explosions and suspensions, there's another practice going on in schools. And that is that they're in-house detaining suspended. So they're putting them in rooms. And when you look at those rooms and you pass by them, because this has been testimony by teachers themselves, they see the students of color inside those rooms. So they're using a different methodology of detaining and suspending. But even though you don't throw them out of school, they're not necessarily learning. But part of 222 is also supposed to make sure that the student is making That's where the vigilance comes progress. in, because you have to, again, it gets lost in translation. So you have to be vigilant over that process as well. Yeah. But do you want to explain that a little bit, Rochelle? I mean, part of 222 says the student is supposed to also get an education if they do have to have some sort of alternative. Right, right. right. So chapter 222 makes some distinctions between sort of short-term and long-term suspension in school and out of school suspension. The data that the department looks at um, includes um, any suspensions or removals that yeah. are, again, if it's in school, it's more than half a day, or if it's out of school, it's for any portion yeah. of the day. But um, there are some different parameters in terms of some of the requirements related to um, the due process. So you know, some of it might be oral versus written kind of communication, but, but certainly all of them are taken seriously within the law. And it's the expectation that schools will be considering different options and what would best meet the needs of the student. But all, all of those kinds of suspensions are, are in the realm. But Willie brings up a good point, uh, if there's not oversight. Right. What happens if a district suspension rate goes up or if there are a lot of kids in a, in a room somewhere with a volunteer and their educational needs aren't being met? What, what happens to that district? Are there are there certain courses of action that have to be taken? I would yeah. assume there are. Right. Right. So um, it can play out in a number of ways. Um, I think if if there are complaints um, brought to the attention of the department about specific violations or, or yeah. uh, in compliance, then the department looks into those and has a, has a sort of a structured process to look into those and determine whether um, there's non-compliance findings or not and corrective action needed. Um, in general, in terms of the data that's actually reported to the department, um, we do these now annual identifications so that those that have the highest rates um, would be sort of basically identified and asked to submit action plans. Um, so that is part of, of the consequences as well. Is that on them? 
is it self-reported by the school? Yes. And so they have to make also the things of race and ethnicity. Do they have to let back back yes. breakdown as yes. well? Yes. So um, the schools and district, the districts report um, for all the schools the information to, um, to the department, and it um, it, it is on yeah. them. And then uh, there is. Um, I think conversation across the board in terms of data accuracy and improving that over time, right. both both in terms of the challenge of collecting and reporting, particularly for large schools and districts. Um, and I think the, the point you just made, and I see there's a lot, a lot so of I'm questions. Keep it real quick. Okay. Um, the, the complaint point you made that that this is something you don't first you don't need a lawyer right like this is something that parents have the standing to file students have the standard to file educators community members have the standing to file and uh and these are complaints that go to our state and it's real quick yes or no did you follow chapter 222 did you apply the protections that these families and students deserve no these are the steps you're going to have to take to fix it now one of those things could be one tree falling in the forest but if we as a community um, are up on these things together and are working together, right? These are things that can be uh, corralled, if you will, to be one of the districts that you guys are paying more attention to. And more importantly, they are one of the schools that we can leverage that sort of power with. In the instance that you've seen where students are being sent out of the room, right? Uh, what we know about chapter 222, one of the end arounds we were worried about was that, right? Was that instead of getting the formal suspension, you get something far less formal that wouldn't even make the books, right? And so what the law says is, look, it doesn't count as an in-school suspension or an out-of-school suspension if it's for less than half a day, um, unless it's a repeated occurrence. And so if we have schools or students um, or groups of students who get that, one of the students don't, that's a, that's a concern that now our State Department of Education is flagged as a violation of this law. So these are the things that we can be vigilant about from the different places that we come to this work in. Middle microphone, I think you were there first. Yes, uh, bonsoir. <laughs> um, so in expansion of the school to prison pipeline, earlier where you mentioned the cradle to prison pipeline and families who come from families of non-white families have questions about what they can do to support their students and their sons and daughters who are in school. So my question is, how can non-white families, parents and single parents participate in reforming school the school discipline? discipline policy and combating the school to prison pipeline. Okay. Uh, both of you want to answer. Why don't you start? I'll go to the other one. Well, there's the families, the community, the schools, the parents, all together align in parallel to develop a, a child. But in order for, for all of them to work together, they need to respect each other. And they need to say that I need to empower that parent and family to be able to engage me as a teacher because the parent can help the teacher in the support when they go home. They, they, only, they don't need to know the material. They just need to create an environment of learning at home rather than distracting them with la novela or distracting them with taking care of other children. They're taking care of their own siblings because parents are working in immigrant families. In particular, they're working all the time. All you have to do is create that environment at home. But we have to do a better job, those who know and have this knowledge, to get it out to our community so they know how to activate their voices. 
But if the school system does not respect parents and puts them to, hey, do a fundraiser for me, um, let's do a bake sale so you can bring, but they also believe in the independence of the high schooler, but not believe in parent, really a family wants to still be engaged with their children. Our own system develops the barriers that impedes our own family and community from engaging with them. So the, the family has to believe that their school is doing right by their child, but they also need the, the voice of that family to be able to speak on behalf of their child and deal with those limitations. So it's in a matter of engaging everybody in this work with that one child, but they also have to do a better job at advocating. We all have to do a better job at informing our community of what their rights are yeah. and how to activate them and how to also give them that audience within the school so the school can work in tandem with the family on that development. And they have to be culturally responsive about that and sensitive. Like I said, a greeting can matter a lot. And with immigrant communities, you're not gonna get parents to come in on discipline of suspension. Believe me, I work with my Latino community. I got more calls when Trump put out the ban mm -hmm. around support and fear that they were gonna be, um, they, they were going to be reported by the teachers or by the schools around their status. Yeah. And, and childs, children are doing translation for their own parents as well. So there's other things, challenges that families have that disengage them from the school and the school wants to engage them. But we need to do a better job at connecting those things and understanding the realities that these families face. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so yeah. Yeah, your advice to parents. Um, so, I mean, this is this is the beauty of the work, right, is that everything that we're struggling with here in Massachusetts or here in Boston is what people are, are, are dealing with in Philadelphia and Chicago and Los Angeles. And so we can look to each other for common solutions. So in Los in 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 Chicago to start, uh, a parent organizing group called Power Pack uh, set up the restorative justice that Russ talked about. They set up centers within the schools uh, in partnership with Chicago Public Schools such that community members, parents, when they had an off day or grandparents who were already retired would come to the school and occupy this room and uh, would receive the same training that the educators would around the principles of restorative justice and how to conduct this conference. So when there was something that flared up at school between students, instead of being sent home, they were sent to this room. Right um, with adults that they could connect with, that they would not necessarily have immediate baggage with because it was the same adult who kicked them out and said, I'm going to suspend you or any of that. Right, um, And that was one very real way that parents became a part of that community and added to the connectivity that those students deserved. Right? In Los Angeles, a parent organizing group named Cadre uh, worked on uh, all sorts of disciplinary policy reforms, but when it was clear that it wasn't happening in their district, um, the parents organized uh, around uh, a set of principles, a checklist, uh, a, a process by which they toured each of the schools in their district to see whether and how the, their schools were implementing positive behavior supports. One That's of the practices right. that Russ mentioned. And when it was clear that their school was making those efforts, they could see the signs internally, externally, qualitatively, quantitatively. They shined the light on that. But they also called out the schools in their district who put those books on the shelf as soon as professional development was over. And that was a way that parents could monitor and be a part of the system. In Massachusetts, we have a law that says we have to. It says that our school districts, when they analyze and review the discipline code of conduct, which they're required to do each year, they have to engage parents in doing that. So if you wanna do it, you say, this is what I'm volunteering for. And if they say that you can't, 
please give me a call. A <laughs> <laughs> woman on the right. Can't really hear you too well. Yeah. Oh, oh there we go. I'm concerned about our students who experience trauma. Yeah and the likelihood that exclusionary discipline will be used for them disproportionately, and also that the impacts on them will be disproportionate and that they won't just be educational, but they may impact students' ability to get a meal or to be in a safe space for eight hours or six hours a day. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Speak to it. What do we know about kids and trauma and discipline? Uh, it's a it, it's a it's a very important point because again, when I mentioned the impact, it not only traumatizes the child but also traumatizes the family. Um, there are a number of of groups, um, in particular my juvenile justice area, that work with traumatized children. You can't avoid the issue of violence when we talk about juvenile justice because most of that comes so we talk a lot about the PTSD the the that that's affected by many many issues because once you push them out roll them you roll them out into the streets they again get exposed to the communities. The schools are the safe havens in many cases. We we created them to be the hub of the center of safety. And yet they themselves become somewhat uh, that exposure. You know, you have Harper High in Chicago, which had 24 um, fatalities, not 24 um, shootings in one year, five were fatalities. Um, and so one is training the people that are going to be going to the schools, especially now there's a lot of effort on trauma-informed practices. So even when you're training professionals to work with traumatized children, they have to, their systems, including in our in our educational system, higher ed, they're looking at trauma-informed practices. They're combining efforts with the behavioral science community, with the mental health communities, the nonprofits. Boston is very resource rich. So we're fortunate to have certain things that focus on particular that. But when you combine violence with a public health issue, it becomes a central to the community to focus on intervention strategies. And there are schools in Boston that I know that have um, psychologists, social workers, clinicians working with these kids. This is what we call the wraparound school, right? The one that understands that so many of these young people come in with trauma already, being exposed to, to violence and being exposed to many things that happen in families, um, going in with tra traumatized and also coming out of schools traumatized as well. And some of these, these issues around discipline is also a reinforcement in this sort of internalized anger that they may have. So you might discipline, they may think, they're being punished, so they're reacting, and that's a symptomatic to the trauma that they've suffered around their exposure. But there are a number of many, many organizations in Boston in particular, uh, the Ju Ju Justice Resource Institute has the trauma response team that goes when there's a violence, like a child uh, shot or, or, or a person that, that dies because of violence, a young child, they go out there and work with the schools, work with the parents, work with the residents, work with the kids just to get them into their mindset that let's step back for a moment and reflect. So there are a number of strategies, but I'm glad to see now that the literature and the research is showing that there's more focus on the this in trauma as being the center of our approach to really uh, improving a young child's health as well as academic achievement. Because you take the trauma out of the mental health issues, we don't uh, we don't address them well. Um, and especially you have the IDEA, which also focuses in the Rehab Act, 
which also mandates that we mandates, definitely right. intervene. Mandates. You know, both legally because statutory, we're supposed to have be responsible mm -hmm. for that. And we have an agency like DCF that handles many of those cases mm -hmm. as well. So there's a combination of agencies. The problem for me is that it's access to that information that really people need. Um, because you could have it, you could have all the resources, you could be resource rich, but it never gets to where it needs to get to. So we need to do a better job at getting it there because we have a lot of people, professionals intervening on that app. And there's a lot of literature also that I would sway people to do that. And also the Department of Education does a good job with working interagency around these issues that are affecting kids. So they're, they're actually partnering in a cross sector because it's not just an it's the school's issue, it's the family's issue, it's department mental health. So there's a combination of resources out there available for that, so. Okay, question in the middle. Yes, um, thank you um, for the presentation. I'm, I've heard some really um, inspiring um, initiatives. Um, Professor Skiba, in your work, two things that stood out were um, the disproportionate um, disciplining of, of black students yeah. and how even with controlling all the other variables, they are still um, disproportionately dis disciplined. Um, the other thing that stood out was the difficulty in having conversations about race. So my question for the panel is what is being done in each of your fields to address head on the issue of race, specifically anti-blackness, negative stereotypes, and white privilege? Yeah. yeah. Hey. Yes. I can start. Yeah, I can start. I, I hope others will jump in. Um, I, I, that's. I think that's a really critical piece. You know, we we focus on, um, and rightly so. We focus. We've focused on the tragedies of all of those uh, uh, young people who have been um, killed on the street in police encounters, and those things are incredibly tragic. But if you if you if we look uh, into our schools. There are kids, there are thousands and thousands upon of kids who are being exposed to the more subtle uh, issues of, of, of disproportionality and discipline and that obviously affect their lives in the, both the short term and the long term. Um, one of the things that we did in Indiana uh, that we just just wrapped up a project and it's, it's actually still going on um, in, in to some extent. Um, is called culturally responsive positive behavior supports. And what we did was we um, uh, piggybacked onto a regular uh, implementation of cultural of, of positive behavior interventions and supports and brought in data uh, showing that there were racial disparities so that the, the PBIS team could begin to look at those as well. And it's very interesting talking about issues, talk about issues of race. One of the first schools we, we brought this data to the principal came right out and said, you know, when you present this data to me, I feel like you're calling me a racist. And, you know, that really is a, a it captures an awful lot there because there's, there's that fear of, of talking about race because if we talk about the data, that means I or my institution is racist. And I, since I can't be racist and my institution can't be racist, therefore I have to sort of deny it or, or put it down, push it down or, or move on to something more comfortable to talk about like socioeconomic status. Um, we, need to, we need to think about, you know, and, and I have a, a colleague who, um, who, who uh, has, has talked about this issue in terms of like the, the bimodal uh, term of, of use of the term racist. 
It's either you are racist or you're not racist. And none of us want to be racist, so we're going to go pretty far to avoid having that conversation because we don't want to be racist. Um, but if we think in terms of, of cultural responsiveness, um, that's something, it's a, it's a skill. It's a learned <laughs> skill that anyone can have. And we all need to improve on cultural responsiveness. And so, so we move that, that uh, we, we move the bar a little bit by terming this culturally responsive PBIS and continuing the conversation. And um, I think one of, the, one of the things that's important here that um, is, a, is a little bit of a drawback and something we have to figure out how to deal with is getting in trained facilitators who will actually um, point out the, the issues of race and hold the the, the team to that. We found that, that unfortunately, sometimes if, if it weren't, wasn't our facilitators, the team wouldn't necessarily know how to have those difficult conversations about okay. race. Okay. So we need to be doing two things. We need to be ensuring that, that, that our teams disaggregate their data um, mm -hmm. and, and look at that disaggregated data, not because it's possible to look at your, <laughs> your data in a, as a whole and say, God, we're making great progress. We're suspending 20% less kids, but you know we're still suspending the same number or even a higher number of African-American students, You know, but we've got this 20% decrease because our white students have benefited. So we need to make sure that data is disaggregated first. And then second, that we need to have someone there who's a champion on that team who can say, we need to um, be sure that we are having these discussions about disproportionality. We're not just going on to the easy conversations about well, not easy conversations, but easier conversations about poverty or about the deficits that the kids are are having. But we really need to have this conversation about race as well. So, so we, I think the the, the good news was we started that with culturally responsive PBIS. I think the challenge is to make sure that that continues over time and becomes integrated within the team. I just wanted to add on that. One, one, this is one of the most, I'm glad that question came about because that's always a struggle. You know, I've been doing this work for a long, long time. I work with many, many different communities and I work in, in a system that's, I consider the most racist system in this country. I mean, the results of racism has produced the, the racial and ethnic disparities we have in our criminal justice system. So we punish, again, we go back to this psychology around punishment penalizing and putting people in jail cells because they look a certain different way because they are of a certain different race. So we created that social construct. If you ask a Latino person how they struggle with racism, race becomes a reality to them when they come into this country because we often identify with it. We have our biasness. We have our own little racist nature to be, but that's learned behavior. So for me, we create this sort of um, phobia around what we don't understand and what we don't know. And I think this issue is dynamic around power and control, right? Um, this issue of privilege and non-privilege. And there's this new terminology called implicit biasness. So I go back to your point on super predator. We discussed that in my classroom. And by the way, Wheelock, which has a tremendous diversity, I love my classrooms, it's very diverse. We struggle with this notion of race every day. We struggle with the notion of white students being uncom feeling uncomfortable talking about race because they don't feel safe in that space to say something because the, the students of color will bring them and put them on notice. And then the student of color also impedes their own voice because they're going to be construed as, oh, you use the race card a lot. So there's a lot of misinterpretations and a lot of use of what we find are, are deferring to the easiest 
how to address this problem by running away from it rather than let allowing ourselves to be honest and genuine about feeling a little vulnerable that you're going to have to be vulnerable and allow yourselves to say, hey, you know what? I've had these biases before. Tell me how I can change it. Educate me on both ends. Let's educate each other of how to grow together because I'm sensitive to you because I treat you as a human being. It's about humanity and human relationships. And we're using semantics and words to put ourselves compartmentalized what, and what restricts us to have an honest dialogue about what are our limitations of ourselves to not understand and be patient, to really listen to all these nuances and idiosyncrasies that make a distinction between whether you are being prejudiced or not. And we need to really have, and I, and I have this with my students and I say, I put myself out there, educate me to, to understand a little bit more about yourself now, like I said, I'm Puerto Rican. I don't expect that you, we lump everybody in that Latinos will think all the same because you're under the Latino configuration. So that's one person, one profile, one shape, one size, one way of thinking. And that's not true. I can't say honestly and be honest and genuine about saying, talking to about Hondurans or Guatemaltecos or Nicaraguenses or Cubanos or Dominicanos. We all deal with different lifestyles, but we have one thing in common. Don't mess around with our language because that's our identity first. And we have one thing that unifies us is this commonality around family. And we could talk all about family in all our different ways of doing it. And that can start a conversation. But we get so uptight because the super predator started by author and researchers. And one of them was my professor who said that by they could predict 10 years down the road, we're going to have black kids and ethnic kids. We're going to be super predator and going to cost people and instill this fear that created the mandatories, that created the zero tolerance, that created this infusing mentality in our schools to not be patient with people's, young people's behavior. So for me, it all has this really pernicious destruction. We need to step back and say, how do we feel comfortable talking about this issue of race? Why don't we put it out on the table? I'd rather be in the South because at least they're honest to your face and tell you, you're a Yankee, you're, you're, you're black, you're this, you're that. Rather than the Northeast subtleties where we have these kinds of implicit biasness that translated the policies and decisions that are destructive because you're of a different race or ethnicity. So that's the way I, I look at this issue. And I'm not afraid to talk about it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my limitations. So. Sorry, let's have Rochelle just talk. Yeah. How, how is the department so looking at this big, you know, this big question? It is a big question. It's a very big question. I think that um, one thing is, is like around implicit bias. I think a number of schools and districts are trying to take on this work around let's dig deeper into how much is implicit bias playing a role in the discipline practices. And so in looking at the category 18, the nonviolent, um, non-drug, non-criminal related offenses um, that do have um, a lot more subjectivity to it. So when there are sort of disciplines or suspensions related to disrespect or insubordination, for example, um, for schools and communities to really take on thinking about what, what, what interpretation might be brought to bear in this context and how um, might teachers or other staff be contributing to a situation. And I, I think that leadership in schools and districts um, plays a pivotal role in the degree to which there can be honest 
conversations and reflection and changes in practice, um, leading by example, as well as facilitating structured conversations and trainings um, on an ongoing basis. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll conclude just by saying that the data that is very disturbing and compelling can have a helpful side in presenting some information that, that really can't be ignored, that need, that really um, um, requires that schools and districts sort of take a good look at what is behind this data and what can we do about it. Okay. This gentleman's been waiting for a long time. <laughs> it's been it's been perfect because I keep changing my whole conception here. So <laughs> I'm your northern neighbor from New Hampshire. Um, diversity exists, but not as much. <laughs> Although, well, yeah. So I think where I struggle with all this is, is schools are one entity. Mm -hmm. And we're part of, we're a very small part of a larger uh, society. Right. In the language, in yes, the... True sort of belief systems that come out of our larger society, come from our leaders, come from people in positions of higher power than me and educators, don't really help your cause and don't always help our cause as educators. And yet the force of expectations almost always come down on schools. And on educators, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to curb bullying. You need to address racism. You need to address the attacks on Muslims in our society. These are all things that have happened this year where I am. We need more help from a wider section of society than just us. Yes, so you need I'm direction. I'm wondering from you your need. positions, how can we not be the problem and the sole solution, but how can we all come together to work towards a societal solution? Okay. How do we get community involvement? Um, uh, and so they did this thing to us. You see that? Right. We only have time for two or three more questions. But these people yeah. are standing strong. Uh, uh, so okay. Well, so, so let's uh, yep. try to be as concise so as we can. Concise be. as possible. Right. Um, uh, uh, agreed. Right. We're in this point where we have we have deprofessionalized being an educator, right? To the point that if you are uh, if you are dramatically underfunding Boston public schools because you are also uh, uh, dramatically underfunding an outdated funding formula as a state, and you're doing this to Chelsea, and you're doing this to Springfield, and you're doing this elsewhere, and then you couple that by uh, after after starving it, right? Um, uh, uh, using some draconian uh, school takeover model where uh, you fire the teachers and they have to apply for their job back. Um, uh, you know, you, uh, uh, you sure don't, you sure don't build supporters <laughs> in this work. Right. Um, uh, and, and, uh, if we are, if we're looking at it, just like you said, right. Um, we, we look at our schools as though, uh, this is our moral high ground. This is where we have the opportunity to cure all of our societal ills, but we as a nation, we as a culture, uh, 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 cannot find common words or ability or sometimes even language to talk about race, racial difference, uh, and racial discrimination. Right? And so there's a tremendous chasm between uh, those two points. And, uh, and so my, you know, uh, my, my prayer in this work is that 
um, is that we have educators who approach this work uh, from the opinion of we take them as they come. We take our students as they come. We take our, our, our families as they come. Uh, uh, and we become a part of that community. And then it's on, it's on us uh, and it's on our communities to find ways uh, uh, to end that deprofessionalization of this profession uh, and the things that have, that have happened to, uh, to cut this down, which is why we've been fighting on the funding front, which is why we've been trying to put together toolkits for parents and educators and students um, around how they can change these disciplinary practices together in their schools. Um, uh, uh, these things are all coming to a head while all of a sudden there's a Trump administration in Washington, right? Like, like just a minute ago, we were talking about, you know, a, a post-racial society. Is that possible, right? Like we talked about implicit bias. We don't have to worry about talking about implicit bias anymore. If people didn't think racism exists, <laughs> right? Like, it's, you know, like this is the, these are the times when it's going to come to all of us as communities to band together if we right. want to be communities and stand up together in support of each other. And, and we have to support our schools in doing that work. I just want just real concise. Um, I say uh, pressure on institutions of higher education. Uh, our, as as one of our you know as, as you as you pointed out, our teachers are just not well enough trained in what they need to know in order to be able to to manage on a day to day basis disruptive behavior in the classroom. I had a colleague. I was at an event around surrounding. Uh, uh, school discipline, and this colleague said, "Well, all teachers need to know." is to have a good pace in their classroom. If they teach well enough, they're not going to have any behavior problems. Oh. Honest to God, honest what? to God, this person said this to me. <laughs> so, so there needs to be, you know, I, I go to uh, meetings of the, um, the, 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 uh, uh, the teacher training committee, and I, I am pushing for us to have, we have a, a behavior management class at the secondary level, but we don't have one at the elementary level. Uh, and I'm pushing all all the time on this. Um, I, I would love to see pressure from the community put on our institutions of higher education to say our teachers need more and better training. Uh, all we have to do is look at survey after survey after survey of teachers on what is the, the what are the places that they felt most unprepared about. And I guarantee you, it's always classroom behavior management as one or two. So, so please come to us in, in higher education and tell us we have to do that because that, that's something that our teachers need more support in right from, right from the get-go. And demand it, you're a consumer. Middle, middle mic. Thanks, but- uh, Step the, up just a little sure, bit. Sure, thanks, but in the interest of time, I'll actually check my white privilege and defer to the questioner over here at the right. But <laughs> I hope you all come see me at the bar after, all right, because I really want to talk. <laughs> Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, I am standing in the gap for higher education. I am an associate professor at Sage College in Troy, New York, and I am a proud teacher educator. And I just want to make a comment just saying first, I appreciate the conversation. It's been extremely enlightening. Um, I want to just say that oftentimes when you are one of the only faculty of color, and here you are championing the issues of race and equity, it is a very lonely position. Um, I will say that. I hear you, sister. Very I'm lonely. Sister. <laughs> Although I have the privilege of having colleagues of color in my institution, so I do have some support there. Well, you know, it's, it's challenging, and one of the things that I will say just to address the idea of what's happening in higher education 
Is this a constant conversation that I'm having with my own colleagues about how they are even presenting information to their candidates and how they are including issues around culturally responsive instruction? But I must say that many of my colleagues are a bit oblivious to those ideas. So I'm always sharing research and sharing articles and, and sharing videos and all kinds of clips. And now I'm becoming like this sort of, you know, almost kind of strange person, but I'm okay with that because I realize that our candidates need to know this. One of the things I just want to make as a comment is that when we are putting our candidates into classrooms to give them fieldwork experiences, many times they're going into classrooms that are perpetuating the same issue that we're discussing here today. So they're not always experiencing teachers who are championing good discipline and, and sort of alternative methods for sending the kids out of the classroom. They're seeing the same thing perpetuate, they're seeing the same type of ideas that they experience when they were third graders and so they come into my classroom and we're having these discussions and they're like yeah we hear you but that's not what we're seeing in the classroom so it's this constant sort of cycle where I'm trying I know I know there's other colleagues and other at other universities that are trying but it's challenging so while, while I really appreciate those slides and I was thinking man I need to take that I'm going to use that information in my classroom management course I just want to put it out there that it's not always as simple no, as that no. because they're not going into environments that are really um, perpetuating those standards that we want them to That's see. Right. So they see an example of it. They only right. hear my voice in their ear and then come to me at the end of their program saying, I don't know what to do. There's nothing happening here. The teacher doesn't even have a classroom management plan. What am I supposed to do? So I think this is an ongoing discussion that we need to continue to have. So, so Willie, what do you tell your students? No, you know, the, uh, your it's not so much to do, but you brought out, and it also answers the question around the, the professional development, um, which we've been talking about. Um, it takes really creativity to create, and I think it's incumbent upon leadership to be creative about the way they handle the professional development of teachers and professor development of professors as well. If you want to learn this, then you have to make sure that that becomes part of the training, official training, mandatory training of professional development. A lot of teachers do professional development. They have days off when my, my child comes home because they had a professional development day. <laughs> that should be a moment, whether you're studying about mechanics or the lesson plan or anything, where you put your subtle, integrated, race consciousness, you know, sensitive tool in there, the cultural sensitive tool that you need to subtly teach people, because you could do things in very subtle ways where you have the power and control of that. And that doesn't cost money because it's already in the budget. It's a, it's a requirement of professional development. And I think that should be done in ways of subtly teaching this kind of data. Infuse that data as an exercise of development. And what would a teacher do in a classroom like this to deal with behavior modifications or whatever they want to do? But I think you should use the tools you already have because it does take money to do this. But you have some things that you, you, you don't need money for. And education and knowledge, you could do very much in your literature, convert it into your, the stuff that you require, your, your conditions in your schools, the rules and policies. You could infuse it. But you have to be a risk taker. You have to be a champion of that. And you have to have the courage and temerity to put it in that language. So which abides by, you know, that's the way you, I teach and train. That's the way I put it. And that's the way I do it with my students. If I want them to learn something, I put it in the material. Okay. Just briefly, as we don't have uh, very much more time. Yes. Hi, good evening. Saludos. Um, my name is Ethna Fernandez, and I'm a teacher for the past 10 years, about a stone's throw at the McCormick Middle School. And I wanted to ask a question about some of what's been spoken that forms a very important net. And I want to speak a little bit to the gaps in that and the holes in that net and ask you a little bit to elaborate on that. If I can, if you can indulge me, I know we're short on time on painting a quick picture. 
I work at a school that has embraced PBIS for the past six or seven years that has done profoundly meaningful work around restorative justice and principles that does EWI meetings every single Tuesday that has counselors and clinicians in Trinity and partnerships and a principal that rejects uh, suspension as a as a viable option in, in most cases and has all these structural pieces in place that um, Professor Skiba spoke to. And yet every single day I walk by about, it's out of our 450 to 500 kids, there's about every year two to four kids that this setup just isn't working for. It's just not. And that's despite having, being in, yeah. let's say the eighth graders, right? culturally relevant curriculum, circles when they need them, interventions have been tried, uh, teachers that work so hard to keep them and engage them, and uh, teachers that are, you know, Nima Vashia, you just mentioned, and so many other people that are teachers of colors, because let's be real, that matters as well, and yet these students, is, that whatever reason that set up of school is just not, as it's set up currently, is not working for them, and so my question is around these resources and these alternatives and what has been happening because as much as I want to hope that that one last circle is going to work for so and so I also have to be real and as much as I want to say okay yes we brought the numbers down and the McCormick is a success story on how all of these policies are successful for that 99.5 percent of our kids I also care because I know those kids and I taught them and I love them and I just went to a funeral of one of my former students last month. So what are these alternative programs that we have seen to be working as far as re-engaging middle school students and how can we use some of this research to push for this next level of, of supports and intervention that we need so that we're not just addressing that 99 0.5% that deserve all of these things we've been speaking of, but also that tiny group that needs that, that next step more. Okay, what do we do? Russ, do we know, do you know about alternatives that might help that population, those kids that maybe just don't fit uh, and, and need extra help and what do we do? So that's good, you hit. You huh? I, I get the hardball here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I think, we have to be realistic and, and say we need to have a continuum of services. Um, I am not going to be one who's going to sit here and say our, our, um, all of our suspensions and expulsions will immediately go to zero. Um, but we need to consider, that said, we need to continually make sure we have a continuum of services available that, that we try and keep um, as many kids as possible. That, that two to three kids that you see, um, my guess is that you're able to define those kids a lot more clearly once we've shrunk our numbers. If we're using suspension to the tune of three or 400 uh, per year, then um, we're, we're mixing up our kids and we don't know who are the kids who really are, are the kids who are really in need versus the kids who are just going through a revolving door. So, you know, I think the fact that you've only got a few of those kids is a testament to the fact that you've worked so hard that you can better identify exactly who those kids are. Um, one of the things that I think that has been very effective in, in places that are using it is our wraparound programs. And um, uh, we, we see in, in those places where there are wraparound programs, schools shouldn't have to be continually or the only uh, institution responsible for our more severe kids. 
we need to make sure that burden is shared and wraparound programs with the community. I would, I would um, um, con reach out and make contact with juvenile justice, with local mental health, with probation officers, um, with uh, those other um, service agencies to see what we as a, as a community can do about those kids. If we are the only uh, institution that's responsible for those kids, it's just too great a burden. Um, Newport News, Virginia uh, looked at, at um, the, these is this issue of, of, of the, the most in need kids and a school social worker there just started having a brown bag once a week with her colleagues from um, juvenile justice and, and probation and uh, the judge's office and mental health. Um, and over time, they developed um, a system of care that's now one of the strongest in the nation just from having those, those, those weekly meetings um, where they started saying, where are the gaps? So I, I, the, one of the places I would reach out for would be that type of a wraparound program for sure. Last, last question. Do you have a question? No, no. Okay. Um, well, thank you all for being here. And um, thank you, Professor Rodriguez, because for a moment you kind of floated what sounded like a paradigm shift, which was just rethinking about the use of the word discipline. And I think that kind of just flew around and then flew out of the room. But um, uh, my concern is that um, we're not really seriously paying attention to the social emotional competencies of teachers as part of our professional training and ongoing professional development. Um, and I think whether it's PBIS that my school just committed itself to, even though we haven't gotten around to explaining how or why we decided that open circle doesn't work. So whether it's PBIS or open circle or second step or any other program that comes in a box, um, but growing research from Castle says that none of these things are going to work unless you really spend time um, fostering the social emotional competencies of teachers. So I'm curious to hear from many of you, how far do you think we need to go to really focus attention first on what it is we're asking teachers to do rather than how we ask teachers to ask students to do something else? And please, no lip service. That's a, that, that's a great point. Um, one is um, when I was running the Boston campaign for efficiency, a lot of the feedback I was getting from, uh, let's not assume, and I, I like this idea that let's not put all the weight on teachers. We put enough on that and many of our advocates out there, uh, the same trauma that a child can suffer, the, the teacher can take it and to the previous young lady who's dead. I was looking at her and saying, you don't give up on those kids, but you need to find out, as Dr. Skiller said, what may be other issues that maybe someone else can also get that kid back involved. You don't have to do it yourself. I always tell my students, you're not here to save the children. You're here to build pathways. But I also have to, I'm putting them in a very risky area and profession where they're going to deal with trauma, issues of mental health, family breakup all these kinds of things. So I can't assume right, that they're going to be well once I send them on their practice and they're coming back to me reporting out when they see violence, when they see a child that they were working with shot to death. So I have to think that they also have to get their mental health, their self-care and all of that. So I think that that has to be embedded also in the professional development. We're going, we're getting away from a lot of, we want to 
get the skills and get the competencies in, make, make sure they meet their indicators and make sure that they perform at the highest of levels. But we're forgetting that in this society, we're much, American society is very much traumatized. The way we've been behaving in the last thing, we have to deal with a really deliberate strategic measure to bring about social, not only social emotional development in our trainings for our teachers and our professionals <laughs> and who deal with young children who are traumatized also dealing with our kids, but we also have to build it in a curriculum to develop what does this mean? You know, I'm not gonna be worth anything. If I don't feel good about myself, I'm not gonna be so good. How am I gonna feel good about trying to motivate a child to be and be their role model if I'm not even sincere with my own interests? I feel in despair. But you're not here to save your children and save the people. You're here to build pathways so they can take, seize that opportunity. It's a strength-based thinking. It's a positive development thinking. It's a positive adult developmental model. So I go to your point. We need to build not only curriculum, but in our training, but we also need to also find the time to give those spaces where you can rest and reflect and see whether and rate yourself and assess whether you need to take care of yourself better because we need less stress in our jobs to do a job better by building healthy, productive lives in our children. So I go very much centered to the point, and I'm glad that we could end on afterwards, yes, right? Because <laughs> that is a very critical point, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was thinking about it throughout the whole dynamic of exchange and we were talking about this work because this takes a lot of perseverance discipline and self-care so i appreciate it really much thank you Deborah, can i make one two quick points two quick points okay quick, quick. very quick very quick one is and i, I want to get back to what professor rodriguez said and and our last questioner said about about alternative use of the word discipline actually what we need to do i think is reclaim the true meaning of the word discipline Discipline comes from the same Latin root as disciple, That's right. uh, and to, which means to teach or to learn. And so what we need to be doing is to tell those around us, our, our, our peers, our administrators, our, 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 our state government, our institutions of higher education, we want to learn how to, to appropriately discipline, and that is to teach or to learn um, for our students. Um, the second thing is I want to uh, recognize the state of Massachusetts and I want to recognize your school in particular. The fact that you are able to identify only three or four students who need that, that extra support. It's not a failing of our schools that we can't do that. Schools are never going to be able to manage all of the kids. Um, what I want to do is recognize the state of Massachusetts. I, I also want to recognize all of the schools and the teachers here who are really working hard to yeah. create those changes in our school. So I'd really like a round of applause for those teachers. Well, thank you. Thank you all very much. I think we're over time. So no, thank you. Thank we you. only seem to be over okay. time. <laughs> I, had, I have the vestige of a cough and every time I cough, I see Deborah going <laughs> and wondering whether, uh, whether we have really uh, reached the end. And, and um, as the executive director of ARA, I, I actually, this is not my favorite part to end conversation in its, you know, in its bloom. And is the person who said he was deferring a question until we all go to the bar, are you still sitting? So, I understand that and we got, we're gonna do that in a moment, but, but I think one of the things that you practice in, a, in that moment is exactly what we've been trying to do both in this series and in this conversation.
And that is that you took a moment to interact in such a just way. And when we think about discipline, it's really the default. We really need to think not just about students and not just about teachers, but the environments that we create. And this lecture series and these, these discussion forums have been really for us about creating that kind of environment. So I, I'm going to meet you at the bar. <laughs> and, and I would almost say you should make that last statement, but, but I do know that that time is short. And we've been privileged to have Russ, you know, kind of kick us off with uh, a riveting, uh, riveting lecture, and that will be available in its longer form, as will this video. And Deborah, you really, uh, my coughs aside, did a fabulous <laughs> job, and Matt, and Willie, and, and Rochelle, and, and really you who have joined with us. I mean, that the, those joining us virtually couldn't ask their questions, uh, but they can follow us uh, in, in this and future lectures. But this was really about you, our aim in this series, and in the second century series that follows, is to continue this kind of engagement. In almost every discussion, there was a moment in which there were questions about justice, what we knew, what data we had, what more rigorous knowledge, qualitative and quantitative we needed to raise. And there was often a moment of where is race in this conversation? This happened in six convenings. And this is an element that we just need to deal with in a very explicit way in every conversation we have. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being with us. Our audience virtually you will not have that drink at the bar, but good evening and same time in the fall. Good night. Yeah. I want to say yeah. one thing. I love being in this living room so yeah. much, but I have to say my actual living room is only a mile from here in Dorchester. All right. But um, I brought 300 of these toolkits that we worked out with the Boston Student Advisory Council about not only school discipline rights, but what these alternatives look like in practice and how we can organize yeah. around them. Because we were getting questions from students, parents, and educators about how we make this right. So I have 300 of these downstairs, and if you don't take them, I'm going to have to carry them for a mile. <laughs> and so I need your help in picking up any for, for yourself or anybody you can use. Definitely, them. I said. Thank you. I guess that's Okay, we'll end this and um, and share it. Please share it because it's a public information and we have to turn around what we've created and it's horrifying. Y'all have a great day. Good evening, everyone.